0: I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (laughs) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to part five of Hamlet. Grab your copy and open to act three, scene one. And before we even start, I have a disclaimer about Act 3, Scene 1 of Hamlet, which is that it is one of the most famous scenes Shakespeare ever wrote. It has two all-time famous Shakespeare moments, the so-called to-be-or-not-to-be speech and the so-called nunnery scene. But try not to sweat that. The whole point of this podcast is to get you past that famousness, and to get you as specific as possible about the words these people are speaking in these moments. In the case of this scene, that famousness has actually led to some pretty basic misunderstandings about what these moments are for, and in some cases, just what some of the words mean. So the closer we can get to these words, the better shot we'll have at getting out from under that pile of 400 Years between then and now. So we'll do our best to read this almost like it's a new play. So the first and most important thing we can do is remember where it sits in the play. So we just saw Hamlet sweep off the stage declaring that the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. He's got a plan, he's going to put it into effect tomorrow night, and if his plan actually works, then he says, I know my course, which, geez, sounds like it could actually end the play. And since so many people have spent so much energy debating why it is that Hamlet doesn't just kill Claudius, this scene is hugely important to figuring all that stuff out. So Hamlet sweeps out one door, promising that he's going to catch the conscience of the king, and lo and behold, right out the other door comes the king, followed right behind by Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the last characters who left Hamlet, and also by the queen and Polonius and Ophelia. So it seems like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are informing the king of what they've learned because Claudius's first words are, "'And can you by no drift of conference "'get from him while he puts on this confusion, "'grating so harshly all his days of quiet "'with turbulent and dangerous lunacy?' And before we even get into meaning, you can hear the king's agitation in his words. You've got those hard G sounds, get and grating. And you'll also see that whereas a standard iambic pentameter line starts with an unstressed syllable, like with turbulent and dangerous lunacy, at least two of these lines start with stressed syllables, get from him, grating so harshly, almost as though the stressed syllables indicate stress in the king. There's a kind of downhill movement to it. I also love scenes that start with the word and because it means they have a momentum from the get-go as though somebody's just said something to the king and you're catching them mid-discussion. So it's fun to kind of imagine what Rosencrantz and Guildenstern may have said to him. Now, as far as meaning goes, drift of conference sort of means directing the conversation, almost as though you caused the conversation to drift in the way you wanted it to which, remember, was their assignment. So you can't use that directing of the conversation to get from him why he puts on this confusion. Confusion, in this case, isn't just not knowing what off-ramp to take from the freeway. It's literally like a mental distress. It comes from the Latin word for mixing up. And notice the king says he puts on this confusion, almost like it's a coat he's wearing. Remember, when Hamlet first decided to be mad, he said that he would put an antic disposition on. It almost seems to indicate that the king thinks this is a put-on, but it still doesn't make him understand it. Grating means something like troubling or disturbing. It has the feeling of a noise, so his days of quiet, his days of peace, are grated, they're disturbed, with turbulent and dangerous lunacy. He uses that word dangerous a lot, and I think it indicates less danger towards Hamlet and more danger towards the king and his rule. So he's asking Rosencrantz and Guildenstern why they can't figure out what's wrong with Hamlet. And Rosencrantz replies, he does confess he feels himself distracted, but from what cause he will by no means speak. Distracted doesn't mean forgetting to do something. Distracted means disturbed or crazy. We just heard that in Hamlet's last monologue where he talked about distraction in his aspect, but he won't tell them the cause. Remember when they asked him, he said, but wherefore I know not. I don't know why I feel this way. And look again how he's mixed up the word order. It's always stronger to end on a verb. So instead of saying, but he will by no means speak from what cause, you end on that strong verb speak. And of course, Guildenstern, like any minion, has to jump in and at his two cents, he says, nor do we find him forward to be sounded, but with a crafty madness, keeps aloof when we would bring him on to some confession of his true state. so not only won't he tell us we don't find him forward to be sounded, forward means in the mood or inclined to be sounded, which means questioned, so he's not up for being questioned. But he keeps aloof, which is essentially at a distance with a crafty madness, which is a really cool phrase. In a few scenes, Hamlet's going to call himself mad in craft, and you get that same phrasing. Like, he's crazy, but there's, there's that method to his madness. And that distance happens especially when we would bring him on to some confession of his true state. Bring him on means to encourage him to confess. And Gertrude jumps in. She wants to know, did he receive you well? Like, he wasn't rude to you or anything, was he? And Rosencrantz says, no, most like a gentleman. But Guildenstern qualifies that. He says, but with much forcing of his disposition. It's almost becoming a little bit of a duel for the attention of the king and queen. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are competing to see who can give the most important piece of information. Forcing of his disposition means forcing himself to sort of want to greet us like a gentleman. You can say you're disposed to do something. But of course, Rosencrantz can't let Guildenstern have the last word with the queen. He jumps in with, Niggard of question, but of our demands most free in his reply. Now, that first word is troublesome because it happens to sound like a racial slur. It is not. It's a totally unrelated word. It means something like a miser. But a lot of people who are performing this show just change the word to miser because it sounds less gross. So question here means something like conversation. Like he wouldn't really make much conversation with us. He was pretty close to the vest. But of our demands, in other words, the question we asked, he was most free in his reply. So he was a miser at making conversation, but very generous in replying to what we said. That could be another one of those antithesis examples we talked about. And Gertrude has a follow-up. She says, Did you assay him to any pastime? Assay usually means something like test. Here it means probably something more like encourage him or to tempt him to a pastime, to one of those things he enjoyed doing. Remember, that was part of the thing they asked Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to do with him in the hopes it would encourage Hamlet to talk more. And Rosencrantz is only too happy to talk to her about that. He says, Madam, it so fell out that certain players we overwrought on the way. Spell out means something like it happened, that certain players, players again meaning actors, we overwrought on the way. Overwrought is the equivalent of our word overreached, and here it means we reached them and then we passed them. So he goes on, of these we told him, and there did seem in him a kind of joy to hear of it. So he told him about these actors, and there did seem in him a kind of joy. Not joy, but a kind of joy to hear of it. They're here about the court, and as I think, they have already ordered this night to play before him. So they're here about the court, means they're here around the court. And they have already ordered, means they have sort of a commission to act a play out before him tonight. And notice he says this night, whereas in the last scene they were talking about tomorrow night. So that indicates this scene happens the next day. You could think that it happens like five minutes after the last scene, but this line seems to contradict that. Not that Shakespeare's ever great with timing. I don't think he pays a huge amount of attention to those details. And just as it seems like Rosencrantz has won the toadying off, there's a new contestant, it's Polonius, and he jumps right in and he says, "'Tis most true." And notice he finishes Rosencrantz's verse line, which seems to indicate that he interrupts the line. And he beseeched me to entreat your majesties to hear and see the matter. Beseeched means like begged or requested. And entreat is only a slightly less strong version of that word. It means like to ask or request. So he asked me to ask you to hear and see the matter. Remember we talked about hearing a play? That was what you did with a spoken word play. As you'll see in the next scene when the play finally shows up, there's also this thing called a dumb show at the beginning of it, which is essentially a silent version of the play, like a digest of it before the play happens. So that might be what the seeing part is about. Or it could just refer to the different ways you watch a play. And that's great news for Claudius. He jumps in. With all my heart, and it doth much content me to hear him so inclined. Yeah, with all my heart, I agree I'll see the play. And it doth much content me. It makes me very happy to hear him so inclined that he's showing an interest in things beyond wearing black and moping. So he has another assignment to give to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He says, good gentlemen, give him a further edge and drive his purpose on to these delights. Edge is like a push. So give him a little more of a push and drive his purpose, encourage his intentions. That's such an active verb drive, like driving a golf ball or something. And you see that alliteration with the drive and delights, it really gives you a sense of momentum, like, this is great, now I know what to do. Because the king never likes not knowing all the information. He has to feel like he's in control at all times. And Rosencrantz, who by now seems to be the one in charge, says, we shall, my lord. So that's taken care of, and then we find out the reason why Ophelia is on stage. Claudius turns to Gertrude, he says, sweet Gertrude, leave us too. For we have closely sent for Hamlet hither, that he, as tour by accident, may hear affront Ophelia. Closely can have a little bit of a double meaning. It can either mean sort of privately, like through back channels... Or it can mean something like with a secret purpose. So he's sent for Hamlet hither means we've sent a message for Hamlet to come here. And this is something that I think people forget about when they're reading and staging the scene, which is that Hamlet enters the scene thinking that he's been sent for, presumably by Claudius, unless Claudius disguised it in some way. But he's not just wandering in. And why is he sent for him? That he, as tour by accident, as tour is short for as if it were. An affront means encounter, but there is something kind of confrontational about it, too. There's also a really cool sound here, a front Ophelia. And notice how it's also a short line, so it hits even harder. It gives us in the audience and as the reader a time to absorb what's about to happen. Oh my god, here's this thing we've been hearing about for about 45 minutes now. This is going to happen finally. And what's going to happen? Her father and myself, lawful as will so bestow ourselves that, seeing unseen, we may of their encounter frankly judge and gather by him as he has behaved, if it be the affliction of his love or no, that thus he suffers for. So he and Polonius lawful espials, and espial is a person who is spying, so in other words, a spy, but he goes out of his way to point out they're lawful, like this is totally valid surveillance because it's in the name of national security and for Hamlet's good. We'll so bestow ourselves, we'll position ourselves in such a way, or hide ourselves in such a way, that seeing unseen, it's just a two-word phrase, but it kind of says everything, and it indicates that they can actually see Hamlet through this arras through this tapestry or whatever it is. And I think it's also Claudius and Polonius' favorite way of doing business, seeing unseen. It also gives you a little bit of that theme of sort of rotten things hiding behind an apparently beautiful surface. So seeing unseen, we may of their encounter frankly judge. Frankly means freely or fairly or impartially. Because if Claudius and Polonius were actually just standing in the room watching them, it would prejudice the interaction between them. They wouldn't act like themselves. So by standing behind and being hidden, they'll see what's really going on with Hamlet. So we're going to judge frankly and gather by him as he has behaved. In other words, and learn from the way he's behaving, if it be the affliction of his love or no that thus he suffers for. So if he's suffering because of the sorrows of love or not. And Gertrude immediately says, I shall obey you. Because it seems like in some ways Claudius is trying pretty hard to sell her on this. And she's like, well, you don't have to sell me. I'll do it. I'll leave and you can do your plan. And she has the fairly beautiful moment where she turns to Ophelia. She actually talks to Ophelia a few times after this in the play. It's going to be really interesting to see that relationship. The only relationship between women in this play, really. She says... And for your part, Ophelia, I do wish that your good beauties be the happy cause of Hamlet's wildness. Happy seems like an unusual adjective here, as a way to describe the cause of insanity. But remember, happy didn't mean then what it means now. It means something like fortuitous or fortunate. Because if that's the cause, that's actually something they can deal with. If it ends up being like, say, his father's murder and their quick marriage, that's going to be a lot harder to get over. And one thing I suspect, too... Is that the words good and beauties sounded much more similar to each other in the original pronunciation than they do now? Those vowel sounds were probably closer together. So why else would it be fortunate if her beauty could be the cause of Hamlet's wildness? She says, So shall I hope your virtues will bring him to his wonted way again, to both your honors. So if your beauty was what made him insane, by the same token, I hope that your virtues, your goodness, and your purity, will bring him back to his wonted way, his accustomed or sort of normal way again, to both your honors, in a way that will add to both of your honor. So if love made him crazy, maybe virtue can make him sane. And Ophelia jumps right in to complete that line. She says, Madam, I wish it may. She really does want to help this guy. She definitely has very strong feelings towards him. And as soon as the queen leaves, since they've already sent for Hamlet, Polonius swings into action. He says, Ophelia, walk you here gracious, so please you we will bestow ourselves so he's placing everyone like he's directing a play Ophelia is going to stand over there and gracious is sort of like your grace he's talking to the king so please you if it pleases you we will bestow ourselves we're going to position ourselves behind this arras and then he gives Ophelia a book and says read on this book that show of such an exercise may color your loneliness haha prop why does he want to reading on the book so that show of such an exercise, so like acting out, such an exercise, an activity, may color your loneliness. Remember how Hamlet says that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern didn't have craft enough to color their lies? It's that same meaning. It means like provide an excuse for disguise. And loneliness, whereas it means to us being lonely, here it means the fact that you're alone or that you're appearing solitary. Because otherwise, why is somebody just hanging around by themselves? But if she has this book, that explains why she is alone. And suddenly there's this really interesting aside that happens both with him and the king. The act of making her pretend to read the book makes him think, we are off to blame in this. Tis too much proved that with devotion's visage and pious action, we do sugar o'er the devil himself. So we're often to blame in this action. Tis too much proved. In other words, it's been proven by many experiences that with devotion's visage, with the outward face of religion, and pious action, pious meaning holy, it also has a little bit of a sense of seeming holiness. So we put on the face of religion and we do these holy seeming actions. And look, maybe it's a prayer book. Hamlet seems to indicate that later. So with those actions, we do sugar ore the devil himself. The best equivalent I can find for sugar ore is candy coat. So we can take the devil himself and disguise the surface to make him appear sweet. This is another really clear instance of that same language theme that's running throughout the play, of a thin veneer of goodness on the outside of something evil. And this sets off an amazing moment for Claudius. He has an aside to the audience just by himself where he says, Oh, tis too true. And those stabbing T sounds really hit you. He goes on to say, how smart a lash that speech doth give my conscience. Smart as in that smarts, sort of stinging or harsh. A lash is a a whip. So it's as though those words of Polonius have whipped him in a harsh way. And what are they whipping? His conscience. Remember, we just heard about the conscience of the king. Now here it is. And what's wrong with his conscience? The harlot's cheek, beautied with plastering art, is not more ugly to the thing that helps it than is my deed to my most painted word. That's a beautiful image, and another example of the beautiful surface over an ugly interior image. The harlot's cheek, the cheek of a prostitute, beautied with plastering art, made beautiful with makeup, and they talk about makeup here almost as plastering over an ugly wall, is not more ugly to the thing that helps it than is my deed to my most painted word. So not even that is more ugly compared to the thing that beautifies it, in other words, the makeup, than is my deed compared to my most painted word. And that's an incredibly unusual adjective, painted at least when it compares to words. So look at the comparison he's making. So his ugly deed is like the ugly face of a prostitute. And the words he uses on the outside are like the makeup that make her seem beautiful to passers by. And this contrast of deed and word is incredibly important sort of throughout the entire history of philosophy, but especially in this play. It's just like that contrast between being and seeming. And he has one more thought, oh, heavy burden. Sometimes you'll see it as burden. It's just another way of spelling burden. Okay, interesting. This is the first crack we've seen in Claudius of any kind to indicate that he's done something wrong. And again, it's still pretty vague because at this point we only have the ghost's word to go on. And this would actually be a kind of amazing play if it turned out that Claudius was innocent and he still hasn't confirmed anything here. There's just this ugly deed and we don't know quite what it is yet, but Shakespeare's just sprinkling it in there to make things interesting. But all of a sudden Polonius breaks it up. He says, I hear him coming. Let's withdraw, my lord. So the hymn here, presumably, is Hamlet. Hamlet's on his way. Let's withdraw. Let's go back behind our arras, our curtain. And then Hamlet enters and proceeds to speak the most famous lines in English literature. Okay, forget about that part for a second. Let's just look at the words. Remember where Hamlet was last time we saw him? He was psyching himself up because he knew that tomorrow night he was going to test Claudius. And then if he fails that test, Hamlet says, I know my course, presumably to kill him. And that's the guy who enters to do to be or not to be. Almost every time I've seen this performed, in movies on stage, you name it, Hamlin enters with a weapon, usually pointed at himself in some way. I've seen him with a dagger pointed at his heart or his throat. I've seen him with a noose around his neck. I've seen him with a bottle of pills to OD on. But we're going to go word by word through this speech. And at the end, you tell me if this sounds like a guy with a gun to his head. And he doesn't see Ophelia. He just starts in and he says, to be or not to be? That is the question. Look at how simple that is. It's as though he's boiled down his entire dilemma into a few syllables. I'm either going to be alive or I'm not going to be alive. That's the question. And notice there's no question mark at the end of to be or not to be. question here is more like the matter for debate. Am I going to do this or am I going to do that? And in this next little chunk, he's going to essentially restate that to be or not to be. Say what each of them means. He's going to say... "'Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them.'" So it's the same construction, either this or that. On the to-be side, you have to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Suffer doesn't have the same meaning that we use. Here it means to endure, to put up with, for years on end, the slings and arrows. And the sling is like the weapon from David and Goliath. You put like a stone in it and swing it around and throw it at someone. Sling can either refer to the weapon itself or it can refer to the projectile, the stone that you put in it, which kind of makes more sense here because the other thing you're suffering is arrows. And he brings up that figure of fortune again. Remember that strumpet, the one who's always doing everybody wrong? And outrageous here means offensive, but it can also mean sort of hostile or capricious, just like doing whatever it wants, attacking constantly. So imagine somebody just sort of standing there and fortune is throwing stones and arrows at them. And that's the equivalent of to be. So what's the equivalent of not to be? To take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. So to take arms means to take up your weapons. So instead of standing there and having weapons shot at you, you're the one who takes up the weapons and you go out to fight against troubles. And not just some troubles, a sea of troubles, the biggest possible number of troubles. And by opposing, by standing up against them, end them. And I feel like this correspondence has confused a lot of people. Why is standing there and taking it to be and why is going on the attack not to be? Well, I think it's because if Hamlet doesn't act... If he just stands there and takes it, he gets to stay alive. If he sees an injustice in the world, like what happened to his father, and he puts up with it, he can keep living, and then when his uncle dies, he'll be the king. He'll have to basically sell his soul to do that, but he'll live. And then if Hamlet actually takes the initiative to strike out against his uncle, he's going to die. And not only is he going to die, he's going to go to hell. This is what happens when you kill somebody, especially the king, which is treason. You're put to death, and since you're a murderer, you're probably going to hell, especially if you kill the wrong guy, my God. People are always asking why Hamlet delays, why he doesn't just kill Claudius. Well, the first question I'd ask them is Could you go up to somebody who killed your dad and kill him? Could you shoot him in the head in public? Would there be no consequences to that, either to your soul or to your general well being? Have any of you ever killed anyone? You think it's easy? Ask someone who has sometimes a cop or a soldier, even someone who is right about it. It's not easy. And remember, revenge in particular is illegal and it's a sin. There's this wonderful short treatise that Sir Francis Bacon writes a few years after Hamlet, Sir Francis Bacon, another guy who didn't write Shakespeare's plays, where he calls revenge wild justice, which is a great way to put it. And at this time, they were really starting to frown on acts of private revenge. Punishing people for crimes is the state's job. It's not the job of individuals. Otherwise, you have a totally lawless society where people are just revenging forever. There's a wonderful play written a few years after this, probably by a guy named Thomas Middleton, called The Revengers Tragedy, which is almost like a Hamlet parody, where the guy actually goes out and gets his revenge about halfway through the play, about here in the play. And then it starts to spin wildly out of control. He starts killing people he didn't mean to kill. And finally, at the end of the play, he gets arrested and taken off to be executed, because that's what happens when you run around revenging. And to be honest, Hamlet just isn't that guy. Claudius is that guy. Claudius is the one who'll kill anybody to get what he wants. Hamlet at this point in the play is not a killer. I think that's also a clue to the madness plot. On the one hand, it's a stalling mechanism while he figures out what to do about Claudius. And on the other hand, it's the only tool he has with which he can beat Claudius and all the people around him. All these seemers, the people of surfaces, the people who are constantly plotting and trying to trick each other and suck up to each other and fool each other. And if Hamlet is trying to be to be authentic, to keep his soul intact, and also be a good son. All he can do is throw off their plans by undermining them. They don't know what to do with insanity. I think people think that because Hamlet dresses in black and has a dead father and is out for revenge and does a lot of brooding, that he's Batman. I hate to break this to you, but the character you're looking for is the Joker. The only way Hamlet wins this is to introduce chaos into these people who think they know better. That's what can get them to make mistakes. That's what he's trying to do with Claudius. He's trying to get Claudius to confess so he doesn't actually have to kill him, I think, anyway. So on the day when he may finally have to act, Hamlet isn't here to think about suicide, because that'll send him to hell just as easily. He's here to lay out his options. He's either going to have to make a conscious decision to not act, and he's going to live, or he's going to make a conscious decision to act, and he's going to die. And that's where he is at the end of this first section. One thing to point out about these first four lines in terms of their sound They all have feminine endings, which you may remember is that extra unstressed syllable at the end. Question, suffer, fortune, troubles. There's that little hanging off the end. It's that feeling of running off the edge of the line, like a mind just spinning. So what does it mean if Hamlet acts? He's going to die. And that's exactly where we pick up the words. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. He's got to psych himself up. Dying? That's just sleep. No more. Nothing more than that. And what's the good side of that? With that sleep, we can say that we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. And sometimes life can feel like that. Like there's constant shocks happening to you. Natural because they just happen in the course of a life. Flesh is heir to. Humans inherit just by virtue of their mortality. You go through all these terrible things. Heartache and the other thousand of them. And actually, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Actually, it sounds really good. Consummation can mean like a completion or an end. It's an end you could wish for devoutly. There's an almost religious sense to it. When you think of it as a sleep, that's not so bad. So he says it again, to die, to sleep, which is a way of summing up that previous section. No big deal, that sounds great. But as soon as he hears that, he remembers. To sleep, perchance to dream. Remember how he said that he could be fine anywhere were it not that I have bad dreams? Well, this is the dreams he's talking about. Yeah, dying is just a sleep. Oh no, wait a minute. Sleeping might mean, perchance means perhaps, it might mean a dream. And that's the problem. He says, aye, there's the rub. Rub is an obstacle or an impediment. That's why it's not just easy to die. You'll be fine by acting and being killed or by suicide, whatever it is. It seems like an easy way out except for this dream. And a rub literally comes from something we've talked about before, which is this game of bowls. Very similar to bocce." And rubs are essentially like little objects that are put in the field of play to block the ball from the course it intends on. So the ball's just rolling along fine. I'm going to die. I'm going to sleep. It'll be great. No problem. And then it hits an obstacle, the rub. And why is the dream the obstacle? For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. And you've probably heard that phrase, shuffled off this mortal coil, many times in your life as an expression for dying. I think when most people picture it, you picture someone standing on top of like a giant spring, shuffling along until they finally fall off it. Shuffled off means to shake off, almost as though you have like a coat around your shoulders or a cloak, and you just shrug your shoulders until it comes off. And coil means like turmoil or disturbance or all the bad things in life. Mortal coil is all the terrible things that mortal people have to go through. So when we've thrown off all that terrible mortal stuff, it's the dreams that must give us pause. And give us pause just means makes us hesitate, hesitate to act, basically, or hesitate to die. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. A respect is like a consideration or a factor. So like that's the factor that makes calamity, that makes disaster of so long life. And there's two possible things that could mean. So it makes a disaster of such a long life, or it makes the disaster itself live so long. I also really love that last phrase, so long life. Those long sounds, they're all stressed. You really get a sense for how long life is. So that's why we put up with all the terrible stuff that happens over the course of a long life instead of just dying instantly. And this, by the way, is Hamlet's spelling out in language why he's delaying. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay? the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin. Who would bear? Who would endure or put up with the whips and scorns of time? Scorns are insults. But again, this is like those arrows and slings he was talking about earlier, They're physical objects, the whips, the sort of punishments of time. This can either be passing time or like our time, the arrow we live in. So who would put up with that? The oppressor's wrong. In other words, the way in which people who oppress you wrong you. The proud man's contumely. Contumely is like insulting behavior. So someone who's too proud of themselves is always looking down on you. The pangs of despised love. I think we know what despised means. It means like rejected. Sometimes you'll see other texts use despised, which means unvalued love. But either way, it's the idea that the person you love doesn't love you back. And you have pangs because of that. The law's delay. Well, that's exactly his problem. In other words, the delay of the law in carrying out justice. If the law was prompt, then he wouldn't have to kill Claudius the insolence of office, office here is like officials, almost like politicians, the insolent way they treat you, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. Spurns are like rejections, but they're literally kicks. And merit is a person who merits something, a deserving person, in other words. So you're patient, and meritorious, and you're taking these kicks of the unworthy from unworthy people. So basically, this is about the way in which the bad people always seem to beat out the good ones. So who would put up with all that crap when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? And this is where we run into all the trouble. This is the only possible reference to suicide in this speech. Quietus is a Latin term. It's a legal term. Really, it's an accounting term. What it means is to settle up an account. Remember how the ghost talks about not having his reckoning? This is like when all the debts and outstanding payments are settled. And it's come to be a metaphor for death, and mostly because of this speech, also for suicide. A bare bodkin, in addition to having those cool B sounds, just means a dagger that's out of its sheath. So I will admit, this could refer to suicide. Who would put up with all the crappy things that come in life when you could just end it at any time? Yourself, with a dagger to the chest. But you could also think about revenge as a sort of settling up of accounts. Right now, Claudius owes him a death, his father's death. He needs to settle that up. So one way you could talk about making a quietus is by paying someone back for the wrong they did you. And you can kill another guy with a bear bodkin too. It doesn't just have to be yourself. So this could mean, who would put up with all these terrible things when you could just take a dagger and make it all better yourself by killing your enemies? Now, of course, the result of that is that you would then be executed. But even if it's the suicide answer, which is totally valid here, that does not make this a speech about suicide. In no way does it make it a speech about suicide. This is a speech about whether to act or not by a guy who is in the throes of thinking about whether to act or not. Why would he go back to being suicidal here? And he continues, who would these fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. So this is a long speech, but let's take all its little clauses apart. So who would these fardels bear? Fardels is a great word to say. It just means burdens. And you can really see that from that next line, to grunt and sweat under a weary life. Grunt and sweat really gives you that sense of somebody trudging along under these burdens that they're carrying. But that if it wasn't for the fact that the dread of something after death. And notice, by the way, the echo of that word bear, bear bodkin and fardels bear. It's two different spellings and meanings, but it's a nice echo. So who would put up with these burdens but that the dread of something after death If it wasn't for the fact that the Dread, being scared of something after death, and notice those hard D sounds too, which really ram it home, and then he has this parenthetical describing what the after death part is, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. And remember, this is a super famous image, but no one had tried it out before this guy. The idea of thinking about the afterlife as an undiscovered country, especially in the time in history when people were going out on ships and finding undiscovered countries, is really original and cool. Give the guy a little credit. It's almost thinking about America as the afterlife, which ought to tell you something about America. So it's the undiscovered country from who's born, from whose frontier or border, no traveler returns. So you can go out and find it, but you can never come back from it, with the possible exception of that ghost, but who knows. So it's the dread of something after death that puzzles the will. And puzzles isn't like when a dog turns its head sideways. It's like paralyzes the will. That stops you from acting and dying. And it makes us rather bear those ills we have. There's that word bear again from the beginning of the sentence coming back. So we bear those ills. We put up with those evils we have instead of flying off to others that we know not of. Instead of running off to other ills that we don't know about. It's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. I know that life on earth is bad and miserable and a chain of sorrows. I don't know what the afterlife is like. I'll take my chances here. That's why we don't act. And he concludes, thus, Conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sickly o'er with the pale cast of thought. So I like those strong, hard C sounds in conscience and cowards. There he is beating himself up again. So conscience is like the little voice in his head telling him not to act, because who knows what will happen after you act. So that's why we're all cowards. And thus the native hue of resolution, native hue is like the natural healthy color of resolving to do something, is sickly dour. That's a beautiful created word. Someone can be sickly, but in this case, it means covered over with a sickly color, with the pale cast of thought. Cast is like a tinge or a shade. So the opposite of resolution to do something is thought. And this is another antithesis. You have the native hue of resolution, this beautiful, strong color versus the pale cast of thought, the sickly grossness of thinking too much. And enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. I think we've seen the word pith before. It essentially means the central, most important thing. So these really important enterprises. Other texts sometimes use the word pitch. They put a C in there, which can mean like high aspiration. And moment can mean importance or consequence. It's sort of that same idea as momentum or momentous. So these really great, important enterprises, like for example, revenging your father, with this regard, with this consideration of the afterlife, their currents turn awry. Awry means to sort of one side or the other. So you have this current that's rushing straight towards its goal. It's really worthy enterprise. And then as soon as you think, its currents turn awry, almost like a river diverting to one side and lose the name of action. So these enterprises that were really going off to do their thing, they just sag and lose all their air and they're no longer active. They're passive. They just sit there and take the slings and arrows. Does this sound like a guy who's ready to kill his uncle in the next scene? I think he's still incredibly torn. Not about whether his uncle deserves to die, but about whether he's a killer and whether he can actually go through with it. Whether he's willing to put his soul on the line because of this thing a ghost told him. And all of a sudden, he notices Ophelia, or maybe she comes out. He says, "Soft, you now," which means something like, wait, or hold on a second. The fair Ophelia. I don't think he expected her to be here. Remember, they're not supposed to speak. She's been locked away from him. They had that one weird encounter in her closet. And then he calls out to her in a slightly strange way. He says, Nymph, in thy aura sins be all my sins remembered. A nymph is a kind of young female goddess, usually from Greek mythology. And they're usually attached to natural places, um, which when we see what happens to Ophelia, may be some kind of really bad foreshadowing. In thy orisons, in your prayers, be all my sins remembered. May all my sins be mentioned. So he's asking her to pray for his sins. And his sins, by the way, is almost exactly what he's thinking about at this moment. And she speaks right to him. She says, good my Lord, how does your honor for this many a day? And this again is a way of saying, my good Lord. It's a little on the formal side. And she calls him your honor, which is also pretty formal. How are you doing for this many a day? In other words, all this while since they last spoke. This seems actually quite formal. It may even be the formula that Polonius told her to say at the beginning of this. And Hamlet responds in a somewhat formal way. He says, I humbly thank you. Well, well, well. I humbly thank you is another kind of formula you say at important occasions. And then these three wells, almost as though he's trying to figure out what's going on. Each well could almost have a different way of delivery or meaning. But It's different than just saying, I'm doing well. And then she launches right into what her father told her to do. She says, my lord, I have remembrances of yours that I have longed long to redeliver. Remembrances are like mementos, things he gave her, maybe his presents, little notes, things like that, that I have longed long, which is a sort of poetic way of saying that I have wished for a while to redeliver, to return to you. You deliver them to me, I redeliver them to you. And I sort of wonder about that longed long. That's a kind of pun that I think has Polonius written all over it. So she says, I pray you now receive them. So I ask you, now take them back. And number one, this doesn't sound like her. This sounds like her father's influence. But number two, this is a really cold way of talking to him. It says, I'm just here to give you back your stuff. This is like dumping the box out on the stoop. And I think Hamlet is slowly starting to get the sense that maybe she isn't on his team anymore. So he starts to flip a little bit into madness mode. He says, no, not I. I never gave you aught. Ought meaning anything. I didn't give you anything. What are you returning to me? And then Ophelia talks back. She says, My honored Lord, you know right well you did, and with them, words of so sweet breath composed as made the things more rich. This is actually some fairly beautiful poetry. You know, you know very well that you gave them to me, and along with them, words of so sweet breath composed, words made up of such sweet-smelling breath. It's not literally how his breath smells. Sweet here is more like kind or charming, and breath is just the breath that produces the words. It was so sweet that it made the things more rich. Those words made these remembrances worth even more to her. But she says, their perfume lost, take these again. So now that that sweet smelling breath that went with those mementos is lost, take these back again. Because now he's not talking to her kindly anymore. Why? For to the noble mind, rich gifts wax poor when givers prove unkind. So his kind words made the things more rich, and now these rich gifts wax poor. The things which were rich grow or become poor when givers prove unkind. Unkind doesn't just mean mean. It originally meant unnatural or inhuman. So the way he treated her made his rich gifts poor. And notice how there's that little rhymed couplet in there, almost as though she's trying to end the scene. And she says, there, my lord, which seems to indicate she's handing it over to him. But he's not going to do this on her terms. He says, ha ha, are you honest? And look what he's done. He's just dropped a prose bomb into the middle of this beautiful verse scene. And honest here doesn't mean telling the truth. It means honorable, like, are you chaste or sexually virtuous? Remember all this stuff that her brother was telling her at the beginning about how important it was to stay chaste? He's about to go after her with that same line of questioning. And she's really taken back by this because they weren't talking about that. She says, my lord? And he follows up, are you fair? Are you beautiful? I think he knows if she's beautiful or not. And she's really confused. She says, what means your lordship? And now this guy who's really good with words is unleashing this word canon on her. He says, not that if you be honest and fair, your honesty should admit no discourse to your beauty. So if you're both chaste and beautiful, your honesty, your chastity should admit no discourse, should allow no access for conversation to your beauty. Almost like the honesty, the chastity, is a guard around her beauty. So she shouldn't even be talking to him. And she actually talks back to him in a way that's pretty smart. She says, could beauty, my lord, have better commerce than with honesty? She still doesn't know what he's talking about. Commerce doesn't literally mean business here, but it does kind of mean dealings. Like who else should honor hang around with if not beauty? Hamlet says, I truly. But then he turns it, he says, for the power of beauty will sooner transform honesty from what it is to a bawd than the force of honesty can translate beauty into his likeness. So it's more easy for beauty to transform honesty from what it is into a bawd. A bawd can be a prostitute, but it can also be a, a madam or a pimp. So instead of honesty guarding beauty, what happens is that beauty turns around and sells honesty as a prostitute. And that's almost like a play on her use of commerce, that the commerce in this case is prostitution. So that's likelier to happen than the force of honesty translating beauty into his likeness. That's more likely than chastity and honor transforming beauty into looking like it. He says, this was sometime a paradox, but now the time gives it proof. This was sometime, this was once, a paradox, like an absurd statement or a contradiction. Because he used to value beauty and honor equally. But now he's thinking of that beautiful exterior as just a pimp. He says, I did love you once. Like when I believed in beauty, I was in love with you. And she says, indeed, my lord, you made me believe so. And this is one of the first windows we've really had into their relationship before the play. Yeah, he convinced her that he did love her. And then Hamlet goes real cruel. He says, you should not have believed me. For virtue cannot so inoculate our old stock, but we shall relish of it. And this isn't so much an attack on her as it's an attack on him. You shouldn't have believed me because I'm a liar. And why am I a liar? Because virtue cannot so inoculate our old stock... You know how plants are grafted, how they put the top of one plant onto the roots of another? You can't put a top of virtue onto our old roots, our old stem or roots, but we shall relish of it. In other words, we should retain some trace of those evil roots and stems. So that tree's still gonna bear evil fruit, no matter how virtuous of a top you graft onto it. He says, I loved you not. And I feel pretty heartbroken at this point. She says, I was the more deceived. Like you could have fooled me. And then he gets to this really famous line. He says, get thee to a nunnery which now is super famous and we all know it, but it's a pretty amazing thing to hear in the middle of this scene. And usually the scene is played with Hamlet screaming at Ophelia. And there's times where that's valid, but at least at this point, it almost seems like he's trying to be kind to her. Like they're in the middle of this vast, corrupted world. And he says, go to a nunnery, go become a nun. Stay away from all men, especially me, but every man. Look at what's happened to us. Sometimes you'll see nunnery as a synonym for a house of prostitution. I think that's pushing it a little bit. Sometimes a nunnery is just a nunnery. He says, why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? Breeder is a pretty harsh word to choose. But like, why would you get married to and have children with a bunch of sinners, which is what we all are? Go take yourself out of that system. He says, I am myself indifferent, honest, but yet I could accuse me of such things that it were better my mother had not borne me. In other words, as for me, I'm, I'm somewhat virtuous, indifferent, honest. And even so, I could accuse myself of such awful things that it would have been better if my mother hadn't given birth to me, if my mother had been a nun. Remember, this is still the same guy who a second ago was lamenting the fact that he was stuck in this unwinnable paradox, that if he acted, he'd be virtuous, but he'd die and go to hell. And if he didn't act, he would be a loser and not get anything done. So what are the things that he's accusing himself of? I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious, with more offenses at my beck than I have thoughts to put them in, imagination to give them shape, or time to act them in. He's listing off his sins. It's interesting that revengeful is one of them. Ambitious is another one. He had talked about that with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in the last scene. He has more offenses at my back, more sins that he can call up or summon than I have thoughts to put them in. So he has more sins than he has thoughts or imagination to give them shape. So enough imagination to take those thoughts and make them concrete or time to act them in or enough time to actually carry them out. What should such fellows as I do crawling between earth and heaven? In some ways, it's a nice kind of summary of the play. Crawling is a wonderfully wormy kind of word, almost like he's a lizard. So what should sinners like I do while we're sort of crawling out here on the surface of the earth? We are errant knaves all. Believe none of us. Errant knaves are like complete or absolutely dishonest men. So all men are like that. Believe none of us. Don't listen to any of us. And then he says it again. Go thy ways to a nunnery. In other words, be on your way. Go to a nunnery. And then all of a sudden is this strange sentence. He says, where's your father? Occasionally in productions, you'll see this as the moment where he becomes aware that there are people hiding behind the curtain watching them, which is an interesting possibility. Or he's just figuring it out now, or he's just turning his anger onto Polonius. Because this moment is really where the scene turns. The first half of this, in some ways, could be sad. Sad at what she's had to go through. Sad that he has to hurt her this way. Sad that their relationship has come to what it is. And then for whatever reason, he turns. This could even be a test. If he has figured out that they're there, he's testing her and saying, "'Whose side are you on?' And then she says, at home, my lord. And if he does know they're there, then she's just lied to him. In the same way that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern did. And remember, he says, I have an eye of you when they lie. Like, this relationship is over. If she knows those guys are back there and she lies to him, he's cutting her off. And Ophelia is in an impossible position. She has to choose between her father and the man she loves. It's a who-do-you-love-more contest. And in the moment, she picks Polonius. And then Hamlet really goes on the attack. He says... Let the doors be shut upon him, that he may play the fool nowhere but in his own house. Almost as though he should stay at home, or he should mind his own business, so that he may not play the fool anywhere but his own house. Play the fool can be a little bit of an acting reference. You know, being a jester. If he wants to stay home and mind his own business, there he can do it, but keep him out of my business. And then he says farewell, and he heads out. And Ophelia's just seen what seems like the meltdown of a crazy person, and she starts to pray. She says, oh, help him, you sweet heavens. So where she'd been pretending to pray at the beginning, now she's really praying. But Hamlet isn't done yet. He says... If thou dost marry, I'll give thee this plague for thy dowry. So if you don't listen to me, and you don't go to the nunnery, and you do get married, I'll give you this plague for your dowry. And a dowry is money you give to a bride for her marriage, usually from her father, almost as though this is Hamlet's wedding present to her. And what is it? Be thou as chaste as ice, as pure as snow, thou shalt not escape calumny. This is very similar to something that her brother told her right at the beginning. Remember that thing about virtue itself, scapes not calumnious strokes? Well, Hamlet's bringing that back again. He says, be thou as chaste as ice, even if you're as chaste, as pure as ice and as snow, which are cold and white, which are both symbols of purity and chastity. So no matter how good you are with your sexuality, thou shalt not escape calumny. And calumny is like a slander or an accusation of being unchaste. So even if you're the best girl in the world, everyone's going to accuse you of sleeping around before you got married. It's a terrible curse in this time. And he says it again, get thee to a nunnery, go, farewell. Or, if thou wilt, needs marry, marry a fool. For wise men know well enough what monsters you make of them. So if you do need to marry, at least marry someone stupid, because anyone who's smart knows that women make men into monsters. And he keeps refraining, to a nunnery, go, and quickly, too, farewell. And she keeps praying, O heavenly powers, restore him. In other words, restore him to health. And he's got one more broadside for her. He says, I have heard of your paintings too well enough. Again, that image is coming back. It's in some ways very similar to Claudius's image of the prostitute painting her face. So I've heard of the way you cover up your real face with makeup. He says, God hath given you one face and you make yourselves another. So you're hiding your real face from the world. He's starting to accuse her of being a liar and all women of being liars. He's maybe taking some of the mom stuff out on her. And how else do they do this? You jig, you amble, and you lisp. Jig usually means dancing, but jig and amble in this case are kind of like walking in unnatural or affected ways. You know, the kind of way a woman walks if she wants a man to be interested in her, which is this fakie way that she would never walk in real life. And you lisp, which is like an affected or cutesy way of talking. You know, you put on a baby voice so they'll like you more. You nickname God's creatures and make your wantonness your ignorance. God's creatures are just all mankind, so you think up sort of cutesy nicknames for everyone. And you make your wantonness, your ignorance, you blame your immoral behavior on not knowing any better. This is a real attack on womankind in general, and she does not deserve this. And finally says, go to, I'll no more on it. It hath made me mad. Go to is kind of a generic expression of disgust. I'll no more on it. I'll have no more of this. And then he says, it hath made me mad. That's what made me crazy. This is another line that maybe convinces you that he knows that Polonius and Claudius are listening. Because he's trying to reinforce that idea that it's her love that made him crazy. And a real question in this scene is how much of what he says is what he really feels, and how much is like a demonstration. And he has one more little send-off. He says, I say we will have no more marriages. Those that are married already, all but one shall live. So in other words, he's grandfathering in marriage. No one else can get married, but everyone who's already married, except for one couple, shall live. And that seems like a pretty direct reference to Claudius. And if he knows that Claudius is listening, that's a threat. And we'll see, it's going to rattle Claudius. The rest shall keep as they are. Everyone else can stay as they already are. And he launches one more to a nunnery go at her and then stops off. So Ophelia has spent this whole play being torn between people she has allegiances to. Her father, her brother, her boyfriend, the king and queen. Everybody wants something from her. She has to obey. Everyone is more powerful than she is. She's very young. Her emotions are teenager emotions. And we're going to start to see some cracks. She has a speech here after he leaves, which just starts to show us the position she's in. She says, oh, what a noble mind is here or thrown. Notice we're back in verse again. She needs verse because her emotions are so strong after he ripped her into prose. Or thrown can mean turned upside down, but it can also mean defeated like in battle. You can overthrow a city or an army. So Hamlet's mind has been defeated by the conquering army of madness. And she goes on, "The courtier's scholar, soldier's eye, tongue, sword, the expectancy and rose of the fair state, the glass of fashion and the mould of form, the observed of all observers, quite quite down." that's a huge list of ways to describe Hamlet. She started with noble mind, and then she goes on with this incredibly weird way of listing these qualities. So he had qualities of these three kinds of people, a courtier, a scholar, and a soldier. And what qualities? Their eye, tongue, and sword. Why doesn't she just put the adjective and the noun together? Well, one reason is that they're in a weird order. You would think it would be the courtier's tongue, because the courtier is known for his ability to speak, and the scholar's eye, because he's very discerning, and then the soldier's sword. So it almost seems like eye and tongue are switched. It might be a little hint at things going sideways a bit. So he had all these qualities. And what else is he? The expectancy and rose of the fair state. Expectancy is like the hope for the future and rose. No, she doesn't say ornament. She says rose, almost like the decoration of a rose on a garment of the fair state, the beautiful state. And why is the state beautiful? Because he made it beautiful with his rose. What else is he? The glass of fashion. Glass literally means mirror. In this case, the glass of fashion is like the model for style. He's like the cool kid that the entire kingdom looks up to. Like he's in all of their mirrors. And the mold of form. Like the pattern for their behavior. And to sort of sum that all up, the observed of all observers. The person who is observed by everyone who observes. In other words, the entire eye of the state is on him. He was a star. He was the hope for the future. And now he's quite, quite down. Down is sort of like overthrown, like downcast. And notice how it ends on those three long syllables. Quite, quite down. That sums up his part. And now she turns to herself. This is one of the few times she actually gets to talk about herself. And I, of ladies most deject and wretched, that sucked the honey of his music vows, now see that noble and most sovereign reason, like sweet bells jangled, out of tune and harsh. She says, I am the most deject and wretched of all ladies. So I who sucked the honey of his music vows. It's a little bit of a mixed metaphor. You can talk about sweet music. But it seemed like it would make more sense to have the honey of his flowery vows or something. Again, that's another reason why it seems like there's something a little off about the language in this passage. So she used to eat the beautiful honey that was his vows. And he uses this incredible word to describe him, his music vows, almost like his words were musical to her. So he swore all these beautiful things to her. And now, now she sees that noble and most sovereign reason. Why is it sovereign? Why is it ruling? Because reason rules the rest of the body. But he's also a prince. So there's that nice tie in there. So she sees that sovereign reason like sweet bells jangled out of tune and harsh. So imagine if you had these beautiful bells and then you just like slammed your hand into them. They'd make this terrible noise. So even though the material is beautiful, the sound that comes out of them is terrible. And that word jangled really sounds like what it means. So his music vows are now out of tune. And what else does she see? That unmatched form and feature of blown youth, blasted with ecstasy. So form and feature is sort of what she was talking about before, the mold of form. So in other words, his image, the model, and he was unmatched, like there was no one like him, of blown youth. No, get your mind out of the gutter. Blown here means like in full bloom, like a garden that's in full bloom of youth. And now it's blasted with ecstasy. Blasted means like withered or destroyed. All the flowers have withered into nothing. With what? With ecstasy, with madness. So everything beautiful that he used to be has now been destroyed. And she ends with, oh, woe is me to have seen what I have seen. See what I see. So woe is me. It's so sad for me to have seen what I have seen and to see what I see. So I saw him when he was incredibly beautiful and a model for everyone and virtuous and smart and now to see what I see. But those scene and scene and see and see really give you an almost keening or wailing sound to this language. And notice again that she ends on a rhyming couplet as though she wants the scene to end, but it won't end yet because the king and Polonius come out from behind that arras from behind that curtain, and they've heard everything. And Claudius is legitimately shaken by this. He says, love, his affections do not that way tend. He starts with that really strong stressed syllable of love. His affections, his feelings don't tend the way of love. As though he's accusing Polonius right here and now of being wrong and putting her in a dangerous situation. And not only don't they tend towards love, he says, Nor what he spake, though it lacked form a little, was not like madness. And also the stuff he said, even though it was a little unformed and weird, didn't resemble insanity. The king has gotten these hints. He concludes, There's something in his soul or which his melancholy sits on brood. This is an incredible image there's something inside of his soul, and his melancholy, his depression, is sitting on brood. And this is the image of a bird sitting on eggs. So his melancholy is like a bird that is sitting on some egg inside of his soul. And the king says, and I do doubt the hatch and the disclose will be some danger. Doubt here means suspect, and the hatch, you're talking about an egg here, so that means exactly what we think it means. And the disclose is like the disclosure or the revealing of what it really is inside. So when this egg hatches of this thing inside his soul, it's going to be some danger. So before that happens, the king has to act. He says, which for to prevent, I have in quick determination, thus set it down. He shall with speed to England for the demand of our neglected tribute. And It's almost like he's giving the order right here. So in order to prevent this hatching of something dangerous, he has in quick determination, he's decided very quickly, thus set it down. I've resolved to do this. He shall with speed. He's going to go speedily to England for the demand of our neglected tribute. Tribute, remember, is money that one country owes to another. So he just wants to get Hamlet out of the country before something bad happens. So he's going to send him as like an ambassador to demand the tribute that England still owes them. And he continues. Happily the seas and countries different with variable objects shall expel this something settled matter in his heart, whereon his brains still beating puts him thus from fashion of himself. So happily doesn't mean joyously. It means perhaps, if we're fortunate, the seas and countries different. So being at sea and seeing different countries with variable objects, since they contain different things to see, shall expel this something settled matter in his heart. Is going to cast out this slight fixation in his heart, that something in his soul he was talking about. And notice those double S's, the something settled matter in his heart. So maybe travel is going to cast that out of him. Whereon his brain's still beating on which his brain his mind still beating which means like harping or focusing on it too much and notice those hard b sounds of brains and beating and what do they do they put him thus from fashion of himself the fashion of himself is sort of his usual behavior and this constant focus has sort of removed him from that usual way of acting and after he has just crushed polonius's theory he turns to him and says what think you on it like you're my advisor what's your advice and polonius of course says it shall do well the yes man triumphs again But, of course, Polonius can't leave it alone. He says, but yet I do believe the origin and commencement of his grief sprung from neglected love. Like, yeah, you're totally right. It's from something else. But still, I do feel like the origin and commencement, it started at least. I don't know what it is now, but it at least started because she didn't pay attention to his love. He just wants to get his word in there, just to have the final word. And finally, after this long political discussion, they finally turn to Ophelia, who is a mess on the floor. He says, how now, Ophelia? How's it going? You need not tell us what Lord Hamlet said. We heard it all. Like, it's okay. You don't actually have to tell us again. You know, we were listening the whole time as though that would be any better. And he goes right back to the king. This is kind of a sad little comforting of her he did. He says, my lord, do as you please. Like, fine, if you want to follow your plan, that's fine. But if you hold it fit, after the play, let his queen mother all alone entreat him to show his grief. So if you think it's appropriate, after the play tonight... Let his mother be all alone and entreat him, ask him to show his grief. In other words, to reveal what this thing is that he's upset about. Grief is sort of like grievance or complaint. Remember, they've been trying all this time with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern with this scheme to get him to tell them what's going on. And obviously, Hamlet isn't going to come out and say, well, you killed my dad. And what should she do? Let her be round with him. Not round like roly-poly. Round means blunt or sort of to the point, like lay it on the line with him. Once and for all, we have to find out what it is. And of course, he says, and I'll be placed, so please you, in the ear of all their conference. So, so please you, if it's all right with you, I'll be placed, I'll place myself in the ear of all their conference. So I'll be somewhere where I can hear their conversation, probably behind another one of these heiresses. He's probably spends most of his time back there just listening to what's going on around the castle. And he concludes, if she find him not, to England send him, or confine him where your wisdom best shall think. So if she find him not, if she doesn't find out what's wrong with him, then send him off to England. Or confine him where your wisdom best shall think. Confine can mean put him wherever you think is right for him. It can also mean lock him up. One of the things they used to do to crazy people is they would lock them inside of dark rooms for a little while to get their brains to quiet down. This becomes an issue in Twelfth Night, which we'll get to later. So wherever your wisdom thinks it's best to put him, be my guest. And Claudius goes along with that. He says, it shall be so. Fine, we'll do your plan. Regardless, madness in great ones must not unwatched go. Great ones are important people. So when important people go crazy, you can't just let that continue. You have to keep a tight watch over that. And notice how it starts with another hard syllable, like at the beginning of this scene. Madness. And it's not, must not go unwatched. It's that thing again where you switch around the order. So you end on a strong verb, go. And the other thing is that it makes it rhyme. Another rhyming couplet to send you off into the next scene. So that's the end of act three, scene one. And the king is suddenly very guarded. So now as we move into act three, scene two, we got us a showdown, because this last scene ended with Claudius's plans for Hamlet. The scene before that ended with Hamlet's plans for Claudius. Only one of them can win. And this scene is another one that starts halfway through someone's talking, which gives you that feeling of joining a conversation already in progress. Hamlet's talking to some of the actors, and he says, Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. That's right, Hamlet's giving acting notes to actors. And you'll sometimes hear this section called Hamlet's advice to the players, or even worse, Shakespeare's advice to the players. And it's been taken as Shakespeare's ideas about acting. It might be. There's some good stuff in here. But right now, at this moment in the play, it's for a very specific purpose. Speak the speech. It's not just all generic speech, though it could refer to their acting in general. It's the speech that he wrote and asked them to put into this play. Remember that dozen or 16 lines? And it's incredibly important to him that it's said right. Because after all, this is the moment he thinks is going to get Claudius to confess. Now what do these words mean? I pray you just means I ask you, it can be a little stronger than that, as I pronounced it to you. In other words, exactly as I said it or told it to you, using my same wording and technique. And how exactly does he want it said? Trippingly on the tongue. Trippingly means sort of lightly, specifically it has to do with dancing, almost like it's dancing on the tongue. Because if this plan of his is going to work, it's going to have to be delivered exactly right. And listen also to the sounds of the words in this line. Now, notice we're back in prose again, but that doesn't mean Hamlet has to stop using poetic techniques. You have the double S's of speak the speech, the double pro sounds of pray and pronounced, and then those double T sounds of trippingly on the tongue. Because remember, he's talking about verse speaking, even though he isn't currently doing it. So it's almost like he's demonstrating in this line exactly how he wants it said, not just telling them. And of course this first line has a specific purpose that he's really anxious about. But then, as Hamlet often does, he kind of gets carried away, and he starts to talk about everything he thinks is wrong with bad acting. He says, But if you mouth it, as many of our players do, I had his leaf the town crier spoke my lines. Mouth, it means to sort of declaim it or to say it really this pompous over-the-top kind of way. But mouth is a much more fun verb than that. So if you speak that way, as many of our players do, apparently a lot of actors are really over-the-top. Who knew? I had his leaf. In other words, I'd rather or I'd just as soon have the town crier speak my lines. Who's the guy who goes out in the middle of town and declares the news at the top of his lungs? It's just shouting, in other words. And that's not all. He has more advice. Nor do not saw the air too much with your hand thus, but use all gently. I'm sure we've all seen actors who use their hands way too much sort of illustrate everything. But I love the image he has here, sawing the air almost like your hand is a saw and you're using it to saw the air like it's a board, which is a great description for some of the ridiculous hand motions actors occasionally use. Thus, by the way, means he's actually acting it out for them, but use all gently. And that can be our modern sense of gently, like don't throw your hands around. But it can also refer to like a gentleman or sort of nobly. And why should they do this? For in the very torrent, tempest, and as I may say, whirlwind of your passion, you must acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. And there's a cool escalation here. He says, so you're in the middle of this torrent. A torrent is a downpour. It's like a heavy rain. And then a tempest, which is like a really violent windstorm. And then a whirlwind is basically a tornado. In in fact, it's sort of sad that he didn't have the word tornado at the time, because then you'd get three T sounds in a row. And then a passion isn't just emotion. It's an emotional speech. So you're in the middle of this emotional speech, which is escalating from torrent to tempest to whirlwind. And even while you're all caught up in that, you must acquire and beget a temperance acquire means to take on and beget is to encourage either to encourage in people who are watching in the audience or in other actors acquire and beget a temperance temperance is restraint not going over the top that may give it smoothness otherwise you get spastic and herky-jerky and he's expanding on exactly this point oh it offends me to the soul to hear a robustious periwig-pated fellow tear a passion to tatters to very rags to split the ear of the groundlings who for the most part are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise So he's talking about these people who get too caught up in the passion. Robustus is sort of like that word robust we have. It just means boisterous or kind of over-the-top noisy. And periwig pated, which gives you those fun double P sounds, just means that he's wearing a wig on his head like a lot of modern actors do. But now I want to call all my actor friends periwig-pated fellows just to annoy them. So what offends Hamlet to see someone like that tear a passion to tatters? To take one of those passionate speeches and get so over the top that he's literally ripping it to pieces. To rags, almost like you're taking a beautiful piece of clothing and tearing it into little pieces. And what is he doing with his over-the-top speech? Split the ears of the groundlings. Remember in that earlier speech where Hamlet talked about cleaving the general ear? It's that same image. He's so loud that their ears literally break apart. And the groundlings were basically the lowest level spectator in an Elizabethan theater. If you go to their modern reconstruction of the globe, you can be a groundling. It just means you pay a penny and you stand on the ground level for the whole play. Whereas if you're richer, there are seats around the edge that you can sit in for the play. And they were sort of notoriously loud and boisterous. And that was who you played to with your most obvious jokes. It's that general public that Hamlet is always going on about. And he gets a dig in on them here. He says, for the most part, they're capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. Capable just means they're able to appreciate nothing but inexplicable dumb shows. Dumb shows, we're actually going to have one in the play that we see in this scene. They're basically like wordless pantomime sequences. And noise might just be yelling. So he's saying that's all they can understand. And what would Hamlet do with an actor like that? He says, I would have such a fellow whipped for overdoing termagant. This is a reference back to medieval plays, what were called morality plays, which were very sort of simplistic good and evil. There was always a moral at the end of it. They were often biblical. And Termagant was a sort of imagined figure of the Muslim god. So in these medieval English plays, Christian plays, he was this very sort of violent and over-the-top character. So if you're overdoing him, then you're acting incredibly over-the-top. And Hamlet would punish that guy with whipping. And he goes on to say, it out-herods Herod. Herod's another character from these medieval plays. Remember, he's the bad king in the story of Jesus. So he was always played as this kind of ridiculous, over-the-top evil tyrant. And so bad acting out-Herod's Herod, which is a great construction that he puts together. You can out-Herod someone if you out-act them. And finally, he ends with, pray you avoid it. In other words, I'm asking you to not act like this. And the head actor, who's probably sick of rich people telling him how to act, says, I warrant, your honor... In other words, I promise you or I assure you that we'll avoid it. And he's probably hoping that's the end of the advice, but no, Hamlet has a little more because he gets carried away, that guy. He's probably also in a pretty keyed up state because he thinks that this is going to be the day when everything goes down. So his mouth just runs. He says, be not too tame neither, but let your own discretion be your tutor. So don't go over the top, but don't do too little either. Don't be too tame. Let your own discretion, in other words, let your own good taste, be your tutor, be your teacher, your guide about how to act. And how do you do that? He says, suit the action to the word, the word to the action, with this special observance, that you overstop not the modesty of nature. And I think this is the piece of advice that actors who study this speech today usually take, that suit the action to the word, the word to the action, so that what you're saying and how you're moving should match each other. With this special observance, in other words, this sort of special rule to remember, to observe, that you overstep not the modesty of nature, not modesty like wearing a long dress. Modesty like limits, and nature in this case is just natural behavior. Basically, you don't go beyond the way that people behave in real life. And he goes on for anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold, as twere, the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very aged body of the time his form and pressure. So anything that oversteps natural behavior is, he says, from the purpose of playing. In other words, it's far from the purpose of acting, which is, according to Hamlet, both at the first and now. In other words, when acting was first created up until now, was then and is now, to hold the mirror up to nature. And this is a beautiful image that people love to use. But think about what it literally means. It's as though you're standing next to nature, natural behavior or just natural things in general, and you have a mirror in your hand and you hold it up so that nature can see itself. He says that's what acting is like. You're trying to let the world see itself in you, in the way you replicate it. And he realizes this is a metaphor, so he says as twere, which is just short for as it were, in other words, so to speak. And when you're doing that, you're showing virtue her own feature. Feature just means appearance. So you're reflecting virtue back to her. But not just virtue, you're doing the same with scorn. You're showing her own image back to scorn. In this case, it might be things that are scorned, sort of downtrodden things. And the very age, in other words, this era we're living in and the body of the time Time is also like the age or the era. And body is sort of like the totality of everything in this time. His form and pressure. Form, we know. Pressure is that same root as impression, which is another way to say image. So you're showing everything about the time you live in its own reflection. So that's Hamlet's theory on what this acting thing is for. But he goes on. Now this overdone or come tardy off, though it make the unskillful laugh, cannot but make the judicious grieve. The censure of the which one must in your allowance or weigh a whole theater of others. But if you overdo this job, or you come tardy off, which is to say you underdo it, though it make the unskillful laugh, even though it might make uninformed or sort of undiscerning people laugh when you overdo it or underdo it, it cannot but make the judicious grieve. It has to make people with good judgment grieve for something that's been lost. The center of the witch... So if you get the criticism of those judicious people, that must in your allowance. In other words, you have to admit by your own admission that should overweigh a whole theater full of others. So just one judicious person thinking you're overacting should outweigh an entire theater of people who think it's funny, but really have no taste. Hamlet's kind of a snob, yo. And of course, this gets him sidetracked again. He says, oh, there be players that I've seen play and heard others praise. And that highly, not to speak it profanely, that neither having the accent of Christians, nor the gate of Christian, pagan, nor man, have so strutted and bellowed that I have thought some of nature's journeymen had made men. And not made them well, they imitated humanity so abominably. So there's some actors I've seen act and I've heard other people praise them and I've heard them praise them highly. And then he's about to talk about Christians and pagans. So he prefaces that with not to speak it profanely. In other words, I'm not being irreverent by mentioning religions here, but they don't have the accent of Christians. In other words, they don't have a way of speaking like Christians in this case means good upstanding people or sort of civilized people. Remember, this is England and basically everyone was Christian. And if they weren't, they'd either been expelled or marginalized. So Christians was just sort of another way of staying, you know, good civilized people. So they don't talk like civilized people and they also don't have the gait, the way of walking or way of moving of either a Christian, a pagan, which is just another way to say uncivilized people in this way, nor man, not even a human being, regardless of their religious beliefs. So these actors don't either talk or move like humans. They have so strutted and bellowed, which is over-the-top moving and talking, that I have thought some of nature's journeymen had made men. Journeymen are like day laborers. They're hired workers, especially sort of inexperienced ones that just go around doing whatever job is needed. So it's as though nature, when she created these particular actors, sort of farmed the work out to inexperienced people so they turned out all strutty and bellowy. And not only that, they hadn't even made them well. They imitated humanity so abominably. They were just so terrible at that holding the mirror up to nature thing. That they in no way resembled humans. And hopefully, Hamlet's done with his rant now. And that actor says back to him, I hope we've reformed that indifferently with us, sir. Indifferently means somewhat. He's saying, I hope we're at least somewhat better than that. And Hamlet takes that reformed indifferently as his cue. And he says, oh, reform it altogether. Not somewhat. Entirely is how you should do it. And of course, that gets him started again. He says, and let those that play your clowns speak no more than is set down for them. This, by the way, is where I hear Shakespeare's voice coming through, because this is a playwright's voice saying that like, oh, look, the funny guy wants to ad lib in my play. Apparently, the first guy who played the clown in his plays, this guy named Will Kemp, was a notorious ad-libber, which probably drove him insane. So he's telling them, make sure that the clowns, in other words, the people playing the comic characters, speak no more than is set down for them. They don't say anything more than what is written down in their scripts. And he continues on that same topic. He says, for there be of them that will themselves laugh to set on some quantity of barren spectators to laugh too. Though in the meantime, some necessary question of the play be then to be considered. So there are of them. In other words, there are some of them that will themselves laugh. So instead of just making people laugh, they laugh themselves. If you've ever seen shows like Saturday Night Live, you know there's always someone in the cast who can't stop laughing in the middle of the show. And audiences love that, of course, but it totally interrupts the scene. Why are they doing it? To set on some quantity of barren spectators to laugh too. Set on means to sort of encourage or incite them to laugh. And I love this adjective, barren. It means like lacking in judgment or discernment, but it has that sense of like a desert, like empty-headed spectators. So it's nice that everybody's laughing, but in the meantime, some necessary question of the play be then to be considered. The question is like an important theme or plot point. So there's an important thing happening in the play, but everyone's too busy ad-libbing and laughing at themselves and each other to consider what's really going on in the play. I gotta say, you see this a lot in productions of Shakespeare's comedies where There's a lot of extra stuff going on. You sort of forget what's really happening in the scene. So Shakespeare's still right about this junk. And his final criticism is, that's villainous and shows the most pitiful ambition in the fool that uses it villainous is a little strong but it shows the most pitiful ambition and what's that ambition maybe the ambition to be liked or laughed at regardless of the needs of the play and presumably at this point the actors are trying to leave they got to go get ready for the play so hamlet finally says to them go make you ready so go get ready which i'm sure they're only too happy to do at this point and then enter suckups, ups uh income polonius and rosencrantz and gildenstern and hamlet turns to polonius and says how now my lord will the king hear this piece of work so how now is like how's it going will the king hear this piece of work remember you hear plays, but it's cool that he uses that phrase piece of work again. He used it to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern a few scenes back. What a piece of work is a man, but here he's using it to refer to a play. So he may either be literally teasing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, or it's just a phrase he really likes. So it turns out Hamlet doesn't actually know if they've said yes yet, but Polonius has good news. He says, and the queen too, and that presently. So the king's going to be there and the queen's going to be there and that presently. In other words, at once or immediately, it's going to happen any minute now. This is great news for Hamlet. It means his plan is going forward. He says, bid the players make haste. In other words, tell the actors to hurry up. They got to get ready. This play's happening now. And Polonius goes out to do that. And of course, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern stay behind. And Hamlet doesn't want to have to deal with them. So he says, will you two help to hasten them? He's just looking for something for them to do. Like, you go off and help them to get ready faster. And his loyal suck-ups are only too glad to do what he asks of them. He says, we will, my lord. And he's probably glad that he's found a way to get rid of all these guys. But the person he does want is Horatio. And he yells out, what ho, Horatio? What ho is sort of the equivalent of, hey there? And either he's calling Horatio from offstage Or Horatio has just entered But this is the guy he wants And Horatio says Here sweet lord, at your service That Horatio's always there when you need him And you'd think he'd want to give Horatio instructions But as soon as he sees him He says something strange He says Horatio, thou art even as just a man As e'er my conversation coped withal It's a compliment It's also in verse Which after this huge outpouring of prose On the subject of acting It just quiets the scene There's all this preparation and craziness And opinion going on And then all of a sudden we're in verse he says, you're as just a man. In other words, you're as fair a person as air my conversation coped with all. Conversation can literally be talking, but it can also be dealings, like your dealings with the outside world. And coped means encountered. So basically, you're the fairest person that I've ever encountered in all my dealings with society. It's quite a compliment. And Horatio's pretty bowled over by it. He says, oh, my dear Lord. He may even blush a little bit. But Hamlet finishes his line. He says, hey, do not think I flatter. Like, no, I really mean this. I'm not flattering you. And why would I flatter you? He says, For what advancement may I hope from thee that no revenue hast but thy good spirits to feed and clothe thee? Remember how everyone spends all their time flattering the royals in this play in the hopes of getting a title or some more money. And Hamlet says, Well, there's no reason for me to do it. I'm I'm the royal. What advancement, in other words, what sort of social elevation or money may I hope from thee, may I hope to get from you, that no revenue hast, In other words, you don't have any income except for your good spirits to feed and clothe thee. Horatio is not some rich kid. All he has is his goodness to pay for his needs. And he expands on that. He says, why should the poor be flattered? There's no reason to flatter poor guys. No, let the candied tongue lick absurd palm and crook the pregnant hinges of the knee where thrift may follow fawning. And this really serves as Hamlet's criticism of these courtiers who are always sucking up. He says, let the candied tongue, in other words, the sugary tongue, Flattering tongue. Lick, which is a beautiful image for sort of sucking up to with words. Absurd pomp. Pomp is sort of greatness or wealth. But he calls it absurd. So these terrible flatterers go around telling important and rich people how great they are. And what else they do? They crook the pregnant hinges of the knee. Crook means to bend, like kneel. And you can picture the hinges of the knee, that you bend your knee when you put it on the ground to kneel to an important person. Why pregnant? Not pregnant in the modern sense. Pregnant like ready or receptive. Like they're always happy to bend the knee to someone. And why do they do that? Because thrift may follow fawning. Thrift is like profit or somebody giving you money. And fawning is just another word for flattery. But you get that fun double F sound of follow fawning. And you can hear the language turn when he talks about these suckups. It becomes very flowery and thick. So flattery is something for people who have a benefit. But Hamlet can get no benefit except for his good spirits from Horatio. He says, Dost thou hear... Since my dear soul was mistress of her choice and could of men distinguish, her election hath sealed thee for herself. So ever since his soul, which is the one that does the choosing, was mistress of her choice. Mistress like master. It's just a female form since his soul is female in this. It just means like controller or owner. So she was the one who controlled her own choice and could of men distinguish. In other words, could tell the difference between one person and another. Her election, in other words, her decision, hath sealed thee for herself, has chosen you for herself. So his soul knew that Horatio was a good guy and chose him as her friend. You'll sometimes see another phrasing of this line. You'll see, and could of men distinguish her election, she hath sealed thee for herself. Distinguish her election just means make her own choice. So sometimes they put the comma in a different place depending on what text you're using. And now we're going to see why Hamlet's soul has chosen Horatio. He says, for thou hast been as one in suffering all that suffers nothing. And this is a little bit of a pun on suffering. It's two different meanings. One is suffering like he uses it in to be or not to be, which is enduring or putting up with or even just experiencing. And then the second suffers is much more like our modern sense. It means like is bothered by or has trouble from. So he's talking about Horatio as someone who endures everything but isn't bothered by anything. And what else is he? A man that fortunes, buffets, and rewards has taken with equal thanks. Here's the figure of fortune again we've seen all over the play. Buffets are like blows or punches, sort of like that spurns thing from the to be or not to be, which is another word for kicks, or the whips and scorns. So the Buffets are the bad things, and obviously the rewards are the good things. It's that fortune's wheel again. So you've taken the low parts of fortune and the high parts of fortune, and you've taken them with equal thanks. So he doesn't complain in bad times, and he doesn't celebrate in good times. And he goes on, "'And blessed are those whose blood and judgment are so well commingled that they are not a pipe for fortune's finger to sound what stops she please.' Blood and judgment are sort of the two opposite qualities in all people. Blood is like that volatile emotion. And judgment is sort of your calm reason. And commingled means sort of mixed together or balanced. So Hamlet says, Blessed are the people whose mix of emotion and reason is such that they are not a pipe for Fortune's finger to sound what stops she please. Pipe is like a flute or a recorder. We're going to see this same image at the end of the scene, by the way. But what's the image? It's of a person who is a recorder. And a stop is the holes on a flute or a recorder. It's those things you cover to change the note. So in other words, Hamlet is praising him for not being changeable based on the deal that fortune gives him. So if fortune plays a really low note, that doesn't affect him. And if she plays a really high note, that doesn't affect him. He's not that easily swayed by his emotions. And finally, he sums this section up. Give me that man that is not passion's slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core. I, in my heart of heart, as I do thee... So give me that person that isn't a slave to passion, to strong emotion, to the blood he was talking about, and I will wear him in my heart's core. In other words, I'll keep him in the very center of my heart. There's a nice little pun here, too, because core is the Latin word for heart. And actually, in most European languages to this day that are based on Latin, you have some variation on that. So it's a nice little pun. And then you have this very, very, very famous phrase, in my heart of heart. You may actually not know this phrase. You think it's in my heart of hearts. For whatever reason, that's what it's come to be in our modern usage. But as you may have noticed, you only have one heart. And it actually distracts us from what the real image is. Imagine your heart having a heart. So it's not just the central part of you, it's the central part of the central part of you. So at the very core of his core. So Hamlet will keep a person like that at the center of his heart, exactly as I do thee, just like he does Horatio. And it's really interesting to see Hamlet at this moment, when he might be just about to carry out his plan against Claudius, go on this kind of anti-passion broadside, I mean, after all this time wishing he could act, but being afraid to act. But in some ways, this is much closer to Hamlet's real philosophy than all that beating himself up about not being able to act. He wants to be a reasonable guy. He doesn't want to be like Claudius. He doesn't want to be a killer. And it's cool to see him put that across in his speech to Horatio. Also, it's kind of amazing to hear it now. You'd think this guy would be worried about what's about to happen. But instead, he's taking a moment to tell his best friend how much he means to him. It might even be an indication that he thinks this might be his last day on earth. Because if the king does confess and he has to kill him, that's the end of Hamlet's life. Remember also, there's no one else in this castle who he can trust. He just lost Ophelia as someone he can trust. He lost his friends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Horatio's the only guy who stuck with him. And I will say, I like Horatio very much. Uh, He doesn't do much in this play. Certainly not until the very end, as we'll see. There's a way in which Horatio sometimes almost works as an audience surrogate. That Hamlet can talk to him to unburden his soul. He tells him things he doesn't tell anybody else. So I can almost imagine a production of this play where there is no Horatio, and just every time he's talking to Horatio, he turns to the audience and says that to them. But Horatio is a very convenient tool for Shakespeare to use for exposition and for revealing more about Hamlet. So it's an interesting thing to think about. So Hamlet tells his friend how much he loves him, and then he has just a little moment of embarrassment. He says something too much of this. Like, maybe I've gone a little over the top, or maybe I've gone on too long. But it's time to get down to business. He says, there is a play tonight before the king. Yeah, we know. One scene of it comes near the circumstance, which I have told thee, of my father's death. Oh, this is new information that Hamlet's actually told Horatio what the ghost told him. And circumstances here mean sort of like the manner or the details of his father's death. So there's a scene in this play that looks a lot like the circumstances of his father's death. And then he gives Horatio his assignment. He says, I prithee, when thou seest that act afoot, even with the very comment of thy soul, observe my uncle. Afoot means underway or being acted out. Literally, it's a hunting term, meaning that the prey is running away from you. So when you see that scene happening, even with the very comment of thy soul, comment is sort of like the closest possible attention. So everything in your soul should pay as close attention as possible to his uncle. If his occulted guilt do not itself unkennel in one speech, it is a damned ghost that we have seen. And my imaginations are as foul as Vulcan's stithy. We think of occult as referring to like the supernatural. But the original meaning of it is concealed or hidden. So his guilt is all hidden inside. And if it doesn't unkennel itself, which is a beautiful verb, think about a dog in its kennel, and then you suddenly open that kennel and the dog comes shooting out of it, like at a race. So that's what he's hoping this play will make Claudius do. In other words, reveal his guilt in one speech. He may either be referring to the speech he wrote into the play or the speech that Claudius is going to give where he confesses to killing his brother. We'll see. So if that doesn't work, then he makes an amazing admission. He says it is a damned ghost that we have seen damned just meaning that it's a devil from hell it's not really his father and my imaginations in other words what i imagined my suspicions about my uncle are as foul as vulcan's stiffy vulcan was sort of the blacksmith god in roman mythology And the stithy is a blacksmith's workshop, so it's going to be gross and covered in ash and soot. And that's how disgusting his imagination is going to be, if in fact he accused Claudius wrongly, and believed a devil, which is what the ghost actually turned out to be. So it's another admission that Hamlet doesn't really quite 100% believe this ghost, or want to believe the ghost. And he goes on, Give him heedful note, for I mine eyes will rivet to his face, and after we will both our judgments join in censure of his seeming. Heath will notice like very observant attention. So that's what Horatio is going to do. And what is Hamlet going to do? I, mine eyes will rivet to his face. It's a very tactile image. A rivet is like a bolt or a nail. So Hamlet's going to train his gaze so hard on Claudius's face while he's watching the play, that it's going to be as though he's bolted his eyes to him. So they'll both do that. And after, after the play, we will both our judgments join. In other words, we'll both make our conclusions and we'll join them together into one conclusion, in censure of his seeming. Censure usually means criticism in a modern sense. Here it's more like assessment. You know, a chance for us to go over our conclusions. An assessment of what? Of his seeming. And there's that word again. Claudius is a great seemer. What it literally means here is like his outward appearance or behavior. So we'll go over what we saw from him and decide if he's guilty or not. But for that theme of being and seeming, it's nice to have that word seem here right at the end. And notice how the language is picking up steam here too. It's not we'll join both of our judgments together. It's will our judgments join. He does that thing again where he changes the word order. So the strong stressed verb is at the end of the line. And notice also that double J sound. It just gives it a real momentum to it. So they'll join their judgments in censure of his seeming. And Horatio gets worked up and he jumps right into the end of that line. He says, well, my Lord, in other words, good. If he steal aught the whilst this play is playing and scape detecting, I will pay the theft. It's the image of Horatio as like a guard. So he says if Claudius steals anything, the whilst this play is playing, you know, while the play is being acted out and scape detecting. In other words, if he escapes my noticing, I will pay the theft. Pay the theft means compensate an owner for what was stolen on your watch. So it's Horatio as the guard dog. And what will Claudius steal? He'll get in some expression that Horatio doesn't notice. That's the theft. But basically, this is the strongest way he can promise to watch him. And then basically the entire court enters and Hamlet hears them coming. Sometimes you'll hear like a trumpet or something in the distance to announce it. And Hamlet says to him, they are coming to the play. I must be idle. Idle here can mean something like our modern sense of like seeming unoccupied or not busy or just kind of milling around. But it can also mean acting sort of distracted or insane, like his madness plot. You can sort of choose what that means to you. And just before they come in, he says to Horatio, get you a place. In other words, pick the spot you're going to watch the king from. Maybe they've set up a little mini theater in the courtyard with chairs and a little transportable stage. And in comes Claudius. And remember, Hamlet thinks this is their big showdown. It's entirely possible one or both of them are going to be dead by the end of this day. And Claudius comes in all smiles and he says, how fares our cousin Hamlet. Remember, he's excited that Hamlet's interested in something and he wants to demonstrate how good Hamlet is doing to the entire court. How fares just means how are you doing? And cousin, we've seen this before, just means close relative. He's not his literal cousin. Obviously, he's his uncle. And Hamlet comes back, excellent of faith of the chameleon's dish, which sounds like total nonsense. Now, notice number one, we're back in prose again. As soon as anybody tries to talk in an elevated way to crazy Hamlet, he switches to prose, which lets him unsettle them verbally. But he also starts punning on them in a way that's much too complicated for them to get. So what he's punning on is a double meaning of fair. You may have seen a restaurant offering like country fair. It's that same idea. It can mean food. So how fares can mean, how are you eating? And that's the joke that Hamlet's making. He's like, well, what am I eating? I'm eating the chameleon's dish. And there was this weird old myth that chameleons survived by eating air instead of delicious bugs. Don't know where that came from. Which automatically throws Claudius for a loop with this crazy pun. And he goes on and he says, I eat the air, promise crammed. That's a really cool adjective Shakespeare just made up. It's crammed full of promises. In other words, it's empty. And maybe they're the promises that he would succeed to the throne. So it's a nice little possible dig at Claudius. Because after all, what are you going to do with promises? You can't eat them. And he has another little dig. He says, you cannot feed capons. So capons are eating chickens. They're, They're male chickens that first get castrated. And then they're specially fattened up for eating. So on the one hand, it's another reference to their emptiness. But on the other hand, it might be referring to Claudius as a fat castrated capon. I don't know. And Claudius is legitimately taken aback by this. He says, I have nothing with this answer, Hamlet. In other words, I get nothing from this answer. These words are not mine. And not mine here means means nothing to me. But of course, Hamlet takes that as a cue to pawn back at him again. He says, no, nor mine now. And why are they his? Because he already spoke them. So they've gone out into the air. And now that he's totally thrown Claudius off with his madness act, he turns right to Polonius. And he says, my lord, you played once in the university, you say? Because he knows this is just going to get Polonius talking. Played means he acted once when he was in college. And Polonius is very flattered that anyone is paying attention to him, especially someone who's really important. And he says, that did I, my lord, and was accounted a good actor. Accounted means considered a good actor. And Hamlet's suddenly fascinated by this guy. He says, what did you enact? In other words, what part did you play? He says, I did enact Julius Caesar. I was killed in the capital. Brutus killed me. Oh, he played the part of Julius Caesar, who was killed at the Roman capital by Brutus. And now this is a lot of obvious information. If you were someone living at this time, and even now, you probably know all this information. But what's may be a kind of cool inside joke about this is there's a real possibility that the actors playing Hamlet and Polonius are also the actors who played Caesar and Brutus in Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar that same year. So it's kind of a fun joke for the audience if they've seen that other play to see these same actors doing different parts and talking about the other parts. But as we'll see very soon, it might also be a little foreshadowing to the interaction of these characters. And of course, Hamlet is always happy to pun on anything anybody says, although this is a relatively sweet pun by his standards. He says, oh, it was a brute part of him to kill so capital a calf there. It sounds almost like he's buttering up Polonius. A brute part means like it was a brutish or awful action on Brutus's part. To kill so capital a calf. Capital means excellent, but there's also that pun on the word he just used. Capitol, the Roman capital. And he killed a calf. And a calf can mean like a sacrifice. But it can also mean someone who's kind of sweet or stupid, like a baby cow. So he can never quite let Polonius alone. So after that's wrapped up, he quickly asks Polonius, be the players ready? in other words are those actors ready to finally do their show he's getting really antsy and rosencrantz won't even let polonius answer because he wants to be the suck up in chief he says i my lord they stay upon your patience he says yes they stay upon your patience which means they're waiting for your permission or signal to go forward so it means the play is about to start and gertrude calls out to him she says come hither my dear hamlet sit by me hither means over here so come over here and sit next to me We haven't actually seen that many interactions between Gertrude and Hamlet since the very beginning of the play, and we won't see it again until they have a big showdown pretty soon. So she's probably been separated for him for a while now, both by his madness and by his general bad attitude towards her. So there's a moment of like, actually, I want to sit next to you. She was the one who encouraged Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to give him things that he liked in the hopes it would bring him back to his sanity. But Hamlet shuts her down. He says, no, good mother, here's metal more attractive. And the metal in this case is almost like a magnet that attracts you. And who's that magnet? It's Ophelia. And Polonius, of course, at that moment turns right to the king and says, oh, oh, do you mark that? You know, do you notice that he's going right for Ophelia again? Remember, it was probably just a few hours ago that they saw him tear into Ophelia from behind that arras." And Polonius really, really wants his theory to be right. He will not stop harping on it. And so now we have another interaction between Hamlet and Ophelia, which is in some ways very similar and in some ways quite different to the interaction they just had in the previous scene what comes up to her and, and she's still probably very shaken from what she saw of him, both the way he treated her and the kind of general madness that he demonstrated. He says, lady, shall I lie in your lap? Which could be in some ways very sweet, which is unsettling as it is. But there's also a little bit of a gross pun going on here. Lie can mean sleep with and lap can mean, you know, what's in your lap. And you see all the L sounds in that line. There's a little too much flourish going on in this line for her taste and a little bit of a cruel pun. So I think she's pretty put off by that. She says, no, my lord and Hamlet pretends to be offended that she could even think there was something dirty on his mind he says I mean my head upon your lap that's all I meant I just wanted to put my head in your lap is that so much and so she says I'm my lord and watch I think this is going to happen eight or nine times in this scene she's going to call him my lord which is a very formal way to talk to him even though he is the prince I think she's probably scared for him and of him at this point and probably a little hurt at what he said to her so there's this very cautious remove and I think she's probably still worried about what the king and what her father think and now the whole court is watching her she really doesn't know what to do It's almost like she's paralyzed between all these opposing forces. So Hamlet goes on. He says, do you think I meant country matters? He's playing that kind of like mock offense. Like how, how dare you assert that I had anything on my mind other than the most innocent possible reading. Country matters. You know, country here means dirty or kind of low class. But I will say I have seen many actors try to take the world's longest pause between the two syllables of the word country. And they love to emphasize that first syllable just to see what Hamlet can get away with. When you're the prince, you can say anything, especially if you're pretending to be crazy. And Ophelia is probably totally horrified by that. And all she can say is, I think nothing, my lord. She is not in a great place right now. And Hamlet, quick wit that he is, jumps right back at her. He says, that's a fair thought to lie between maid's legs. There's Something a little sarcastic in that line, fair meaning sort of nice or pretty. And she says, what is my lord? Now she's confused by his puns. And Hamlet says, nothing. So there's a few different ways to read this. One is, oh, nothing and another is this sort of elizabethan slang usage of the word nothing which is no thing which is to say it is slang for the female genitalia yep which is another pretty filthy joke to make in front of the entire court and ophelia of course has to just play along and say you are marrying my lord another one of those my lords and Mary not like happy but more like joking you're joking around right and hamlet says who i and she comes back i my lord well if he's merry then he says oh god you're only jig maker only here meaning something like the best. And a jig maker is someone who makes sort of silly dances or songs. So he's like God's best joker. Well, that's fine. He says, what should a man do but be merry? Like, what is there to do except for joking around? And then he turns it cold in a heartbeat. He says, for look at how cheerfully my mother looks. And my father died within these two hours. Ooh, that's harsh. Within is, is short for within these. So he's saying, my father's only been dead for two hours. And Gertrude looks positively cheerful. And remember, the whole court is listening to this. And Gertrude just has to stand there and smile like everyone else. And Ophelia's probably pretty horrified by that. She says, Nay, 'tis twice two months, my lord.' So, in other words, it's been four months since the king died. This is actually an interesting clue in this play, because we get the sense right at the beginning that the king's been dead for two months at the beginning, so maybe it's been two months from the beginning of the play to this moment. I don't know. The timing's all pretty vague, but it's a cool hint. And Hamlet plays along. He says, So long? Like he almost didn't notice it's been that long. Nay, then, let the devil wear black, for I'll have a suit of sables. So the hell with these black clothes I've been wearing. I should go get myself a suit of sables. Sables are black furs. Sometimes, by the way, you would see the devil actually wearing sables. It's almost as like he's going to change clothes with the devil. But more to the point, like, if he's been dead that long, then, like, why am I bothering to mourn him anymore? All very sarcastic again. Like, well, if he's been dead for four months, well, then I should definitely stop mourning him. And he keeps snarking on. He says, oh, heavens, died two months ago and not forgotten yet? Of course, there he goes revising the timeline again. It's back to two months. He died a whole two months ago, and he he hasn't been forgotten yet? Somebody actually remembers him? Well, then he goes on, Then there's hope a great man's memory may outlive his life half a year. Like, if he hasn't been forgotten in two months, well, then maybe a really important guy's memory can outlive his life. In other words, live past the moment he died by a whole six months. Again, sarcastic in the extreme. But there's a qualifier on that. He says, But, by our lady, he must build churches then, or else shall he suffer not thinking on, with the hobby horse, whose epitaph is, For, oh, for, oh, the hobby horse is forgot. By Our Lady means I swear by Our Lady, by Mary. How can you be remembered for at least six months? You have to build churches. In other words, you have to put your name on some kind of big project. Because if you don't do that, you shall suffer not thinking on. You'll have to put up with not being remembered at all with the hobby horse, along with this figure of a hobby horse. Now, a hobby horse, we may think of it as like one of those horses' heads on a stick, but in the Middle Ages, it was a costume you wore for May Day celebrations, for the first of May, and it's almost like a giant hoop skirt. You sort of stand in the middle, and you're wearing a big costume that looks like you're riding on a horse, almost like you're the pole in a merry-go-round. So it has a horse's body, and then sometimes it even has human legs coming out at the top, so it looks like your legs are on the horse itself. And it was a costume that people would wear on May Day to go along with these Morris dancers, which is this kind of folk dance. But by this time, it had really gone out of fashion. So people were starting to write poems and songs, kind of longing for the simpler days of the Middle Ages. So this song, For Oh, For Oh, The Hobby Horses Forgot, is a nice kind of nostalgic look back to, like, you know, whatever happened to rock and roll, man? So basically, if you don't do anything special to get you remembered, you'll be just like the hobby horse. Everyone's going to forget about you. You're going to be the old thing. So it's kind of a dig on the fact that he feels like he's the only person who's really remembering his dad. Everyone else has moved on to this new king. And then you have this little scene, which is what is referred to as the dumb show. And most editions have some text describing the action of this dumb show. In other words, this pantomime scene, the one with no words in it. Obviously, we don't know if that's original to Shakespeare's text, because it's basically a stage direction. But most editions have something pretty similar, which is basically an acted out version of the play that we're about to see spoken. And it is, for all intents and purposes, the story of Elsinore, too. This king and queen are in love. They demonstrate how much in love they are. And then he lies down to sleep. And a guy comes in and pours poison in his ears. And then the queen comes back in and finds him dead and is upset. But then the poisoner comes back in and wins her over with gifts. And she accepts his love. It is, for all intents and purposes, a total spoiler for the play that's going to follow. In some ways, the biggest question of this is why doesn't the king react more to it? Because, as we'll see, he's about to react to the play he sees. So a cool thing for an actor who's playing this part or a director who's directing it is to figure out how watching this play, which basically spells out Claudius's plot, and Gertrude's for that matter, how it affects them. And is there some talking in the court? You know, what's this? So clearly this is like a first shot over the bow. And you occasionally have dumb shows of various kinds in plays of this era. They tend to be more characteristic of earlier plays. And this is definitely a play in an earlier style. So everyone's pretty unsettled by this. And Ophelia says, what means this, my lord? I think this is her ninth or tenth, my lord, in this scene. And Hamlet says, Mary, this is miching mal hecho. In his continuing quest to confuse everybody, he uses a kind of fakey foreign phrase. There's no perfect translation, but it seems to indicate something like stealthy evil deeds. It's kind of like bad Spanish or Italian. And Ophelia has no idea what he's talking about, so he just translates it for her. He says, it means mischief. And then she says something incredibly obvious. She says, belike this show imports the argument of the play. Belike means probably or maybe. This show, this dumb show, imports. It represents or depicts the argument of the play. In other words, the plot of the play. And Hamlet responds, we shall know by this fellow. So clearly someone's moved to the center of the stage and he's about to talk. And there's usually a pretty good joke to be taken from this guy who's about to talk and Hamlet won't let him speak yet. Because while Hamlet's talking, nobody else can talk. And Hamlet has a little dig at him. He says, the players cannot keep counsel. They'll tell all. Keep counsel means keep a secret to themselves. So in other words, actors can't keep any secrets. They're always giving these monologues and telling exactly what they know. Like he's one to talk. And Ophelia asks, will he tell us what this show meant? And notice she's finally starting to talk to him without saying my lord all the time. Almost as though she's getting more comfortable with him. And he's talking a little more like a normal person. So she asks if this actor's going to explain the dumb show. And Hamlet says, aye. Or any show that you'll show him. So much for that. He immediately starts punning. And it's, of course, a dirty pun on her. So he's like, not only is he going to tell you what this show meant, but any show that you'll show him. And that show has a little bit of a play on words, meaning expose yourself to him. He says, be not you ashamed to show. He'll not shame to tell you what it means. In other words, if you aren't ashamed to show, if you're not ashamed to expose yourself... He won't be ashamed to tell you what that means. Gross, always gross, Hamlet, God. And that's enough for her. She says, you are not, you are not. And this isn't not in the sense that we're used to, which is nothing. This is not like the word naughty. So it means like disgusting or inappropriate. And so she says, I'll mark the play. I'm just gonna pay attention to the play. Stop talking to me. And then the prologue comes out. And the prologue was a guy who came out usually at least at the beginning of the play, but often at the beginning of every act. You see him in Romeo and Juliet, for example, and sort of explains what we're about to see. So he comes out and proclaims, For us and for our tragedy, here stooping to your clemency, we beg your hearing patiently. Now this is an extremely generic prologue, it could be for any tragedy. And it all rhymes, and it's also not in the usual verse, which is iambic pentameter. It's in iambic tetrameter, which just means that instead of ten syllables, it has eight syllables. But it makes it feel clipped and sort of different and formal. But what it's really doing is announcing the beginning of the play. He says, for us and for our tragedy, here stooping to your clemency. Stooping means bowing or kind of like appealing to your clemency, your favor, your generosity, even your mercy. We beg your hearing. We beg you to hear the play patiently, which is something you often had to do when you're performing in front of royalty. You have to sort of thank them for letting you do the play. And then Hamlet starts to heckle. He says, is this a prologue or the posy of a ring? Posy is like the word poesy, like poetry. And the Posey of a Ring is a tiny little poem that you had inscribed inside of a ring that you gave to someone you love. So it has to be either an incredibly short poem or written in incredibly small letters, or maybe both. So he's mocking the fact that it's so short and uninformative. And Ophelia is just like losing it at this point. She says, "'Tis brief, my lord." Like, yeah, I know it's short, but at least you won't have to put up with it anymore, right? And then Hamlet freezes out basically the entire room. He says, as woman's love, like, yeah, it's brief. It's as brief as the love of women, which is a nice dig both at his mother and at his ex-girlfriend now. Can't really respond to that one, can you? So finally, they just start the play because the room is not doing well. And the first thing you're going to notice about this play, and the first thing you're going to notice about this play they perform is that it rhymes. It all rhymes. It's still an iambic pentameter, which we're used to, but it's written entirely in rhyming couplets and it's in a pretty high style. So in some ways what this is is another parody, just like his kind of Christopher Marlowe parody in the Pyrrhus speech earlier. Really by the early to mid-1580s, almost all English plays were in blank verse, which is to say unrhymed. But earlier than that, there were a lot of rhymed plays. And for the most part, they were pretty terrible. They tended to be in what's called ballad meter, which is much more sing-songy. And because they rhyme, there's that sing-songy aspect of them too. And they tended to be in more formal language. They're not good, but it's definitely an older style of play that this audience would probably recognize. Maybe they had even seen a traveling bunch of actors come to their town and do a play like this. Maybe when Shakespeare was growing up, he had something like this happen in Stratford. I don't know but it's kind of a throwback for him. That's not to say this is bad, but it's a little over the top sometimes. So the actors playing the king and queen come back on stage, but now they talk. And the king starts. He says, Full thirty times hath Phoebus' cart gone round, Neptune's salt wash, and Tellus' orbit ground. And thirty dozen moons with borrowed sheen about the world have times twelve thirties been. Since love our hearts and hymen did our hands, unite commutual in most sacred bands. So you can hear what the rhyme does to it. But you can also see how elevated it is. So let's make some sense of that poetry. Uh, Phoebus is the sun god, and the myth was that he drove the sun across the sky in his chariot drawn by horses. So that's what Phoebus's cart is. In other words, it's a poetic way to refer to the sun. So what has it gone around? Neptune's salt wash, Neptune being the god of the sea, and the salt wash being salty water, in other words, the sea, and Telus's orbit ground. Telus was another name for the goddess of the earth, and orbit means rounded like a globe. So his cart has gone around the sea and the earth. It's just a very fancy way of saying it's gone around the Earth. Remember, this was a time when the theory was that the Earth was at the center and the sun was going around it. So how many times has it gone around? Full 30 times. So in other words, it's been 30 years. And what else? And 30 dozen moons with borrowed sheen. Borrowed sheen is brightness that was reflected from the sun. So light borrowed from the sun, which is how the moon is lit up. About the world have times 1230s been. About here means around the world. So 30 dozen moons, because each year there's a dozen moons that grow and then disappear. And that's happened 30 times. And they had figured out that the moon went around the earth. So they've been around the earth 30 times 12 times. So 30 years again. So that's four very poetic lines, which just means it's been 30 years. And he goes on, Since love our hearts and hymen did our hands unite commutual in most sacred bands. So love united our hearts and hymen, who's the god of marriage, united our hands, brought our hands together in marriage. United them commutual, which could just mean mutual, but co like reciprocal. I gave my love to you and my hand to you and you gave yours to me. They were united in most sacred bands, bands or ties or bonds of marriage. So this is just an incredibly flowery way to say we've been married for 30 years. And by the way, later on in the play, a character will say that Hamlet is 30 years old. Never quite bought that in terms of his behavior, but it's possible this is a direct reference to how long his parents were married. And the queen says back to him, So many journeys may the sun and moon make us again count o'er, ere love be done. So, so many journeys means exactly as many journeys as that. So may there be another 30 journeys for the sun and moon that we should again count o'er, ere love be done. We should count over again before our love is over. So basically she's wishing for another 30 years of marriage. But there's a wrinkle. She says, But woe is me. You are so sick of late, so far from cheer and from your former state that I distrust you. And notice, by the way, after all these flowery words, that this first line of hers is entirely in single syllables. It makes for a very bracing stop to those beautiful words. They've been married for 30 years, and they're really wishing they'll be married for another 30 years. But wait, woe is me. This is terrible for me. You are so sick of late, of late meaning lately, recently, so far from cheer and from your former state. Cheer can mean good spirits. It can also mean good health, eating well. So you're so far away from how you used to be that I distrust you. Not distrust in our modern sense, but distrust in the sense that, like, I worry about you. But she qualifies that. She says, yet though I distrust, discomfort you, my lord, it nothing must. And notice how in order to make a line rhyme, you have to completely flip around the word order. If you were to make sense of it, the real word order is something like, it must discomfort you nothing, my lord. But you want to end with the rhyming word and with a strong verb. And what it means is, yes, even though I worry about you, my worry mustn't discomfort you at all, mustn't make you worry at all. And then she explains, she says, for women's fear and love holds quantity in neither ought or in extremity. Holds quantity means they're exactly directly proportional. Ought means anything. So this line then means... Either they feel nothing of fear or love or they feel extreme amounts of both fear and love, but they can't feel love without also fearing the same amount at the same time. And she goes on. Now, what my love is proof hath made, you know, and as my love is sized, my fear is so. So proof, in other words, the test of experience and living together for 30 years has made you know what my love is or how big my love is. And as my love is sized, since my love is large, my fear is so. In other words, my fear is the same size too. My fear is also large because I love you so much. She explains, where love is great, the littlest doubts are fear. Where little fears grow great, great love grows there. So whenever love is large, then the tiniest little doubts become great fears. And whenever those little fears grow larger, that's when love grows large at the same place. And you can hear how twisty this language is. You get those GR sounds of grow great and great grows. But it's that same idea that fear and love are inextricably linked in women. But the king isn't hearing it. He says, faith, I must leave thee, love, and shortly too. Faith means I swear by my faith. I have to leave you, and soon, too. My operant powers, their functions leave to do. Operant powers are like vital organs or vital processes in your body. Their functions leave to do. Leave to do means stop carrying out. So my most important functions will stop doing what they do, and I'll die. And he says, And thou shalt live in this fair world behind, honored, beloved, and happily one as kind for husband shalt thou. Now she cuts him off, but let's go back to his part first. So when I'm dead, you'll live behind me in this fair and this beautiful world. You'll still be honored and beloved. And happily, you know, perhaps, if fortune allows, one as kind, someone as kind as me, will you have for a husband? But he doesn't even get to say the verb because she interrupts him. She says, oh, confound the rest. You can make up exactly what the end of his line would have been. But she doesn't even want to hear it. So confound the rest. May the rest be destroyed. And what is the rest she's talking about? Well, it could be what he's about to talk about. In other words, the hell with the rest of your sentence. Or the rest could be other men, other husbands. I don't even want to hear about them. She says, such love must needs be treason in my breast. You know, if I ever love anyone after you, that must needs be. That has to be treason in my breast, in my heart. So it's not just unfaithfulness. It's treason because she is disobeying her king's love and then she ups the ante even more she says in second husband let me be accursed none wed the second but who killed the first so she's giving herself in a way a future curse if she does marry another husband after him and then she says none wed the second no wives wed a second husband except those who killed the first which probably means that the only people who get married again are people who kill their first husband i guess you could take it to mean the only second husband you marry is the one who killed the first husband but it seems to me at least like a pretty direct dig at Gertrude, not at Claudius. And Hammond has a weird little aside here. He says, Wormwood. Wormwood. Wormwood is this really bitter herb. Like even he thinks this is harsh. And it seems to indicate that this play is as much for Gertrude's eyes as it is for Claudius's. It's not something we had really thought much about before, but he's trying to get both of them upset. I suppose one possibility is that this is Hamlet's insertion into the play. But again, we don't know which one that is. But he really goes out of his way here to mention how cruel this thing he's doing to his mother is. Making her really watch this and rub it in. And the actor playing the queen goes on. She says, The instances that second marriage move are base respects of thrift, but none of love. So the instances, the reasons or the motives that move that inspire second marriages are base respects of thrift. They're like disgusting considerations of a financial advantage. So the only reason people get married again is because they want money, not because they are in love. A second time I kill my husband dead when second husband kisses me in bed. So when I kiss my new husband, it's almost like I'm killing my first husband again. And this is really harsh on Gertrude. So she's making some harsh promises. And then the king comes back. He says, I do believe you think what now you speak, but what we do determine, oft we break. And you may think, oh, what happened to the rhyme? Actually, speak and break also used to rhyme. It's old pronunciation. What can we do? So he's saying, yeah, I believe that you believe this thing that you're saying right now, that you'll love me forever, you'll never marry again. But what we do determine, you know, things we decide to do, oft we break. Often we actually just break that. Purpose is but the slave to memory, a violent birth, but poor validity. Which now, like fruit unripe, sticks on the tree, but fall unshaken when they mellow be. So purpose, in other words, our intentions, is but the slave to memory. That's an incredible image. It's totally dependent, like a slave is dependent on its master, to memory, to our remembering our original intentions. A violent birth. So it's born really strong and powerful, but poor validity. Validity is like staying power or stamina. So our intentions are born really strong. Yeah, we're going to do it, but they just don't last very long. And then he has this image of a fruit tree for our intentions. He says, which now like fruit unripe sticks on the tree. So right now that we've decided on these intentions, they're like unripe fruit. And they're hanging on to the tree. You know, if you've ever tried to pick an unripe piece of fruit, it's really hard to get it off the tree. But they fall unshaken. Like, you don't even have to shake the tree. They just fall right off the tree when they mellow be. Mellow means older, or in this case, ripe. If you've ever walked by a fruit tree late in the season, there's fruit that's gotten too ripe and falls right off on the ground by itself. And that's what he compares our intentions to. At the beginning, we stick right to that. At the end, we barely notice when we forget. He says, most necessary tis that we forget to pay ourselves what to ourselves is debt. So necessary obviously has our modern sense, but it could also mean common or natural. Like everybody does this. So everybody forgets to pay ourselves what to ourselves is debt. Debt here means like owed or promised. So everybody promises themselves that they'll do something, but then never gets around to it. So it's almost like you owe yourself a debt, but you don't really need to pay it off in the end because no one does. Why? What to ourselves in passion we propose, the passion ending doth the purpose lose. So these things we promise ourselves that we'll do in passionate moments Once the emotion of that moment of promise is over, it loses its purpose. It loses that intention. And notice those strong P sounds and also that cool parallel of propose and purpose. So in other words, these emotional promises to ourselves only last as long as the emotion does. He continues, the violence of either grief or joy, their own enactures with themselves destroy. And we've seen that word violent earlier in the speech. But here it's like the strength or the power of these strong emotions, either grief or joy, because they're so strong, they destroy their own ability to carry out their intentions. He goes on, where joy most revels, grief doth most lament. And he's comparing these two strong emotions, just like she was just comparing love and fear. So just when joy revels, celebrates the most, that's when grief grieves the most, laments. And this leads him to a little bit of a non sequitur, but it's still in that same theme. Grief joys, joy grieves on slender accident. So it's easy for grief to turn to joy and joy to turn to grief on just like the slightest change of fate. But slender accident is a beautiful phrase as though there's an incredibly thin line between the two of them. And then he gets very cynical. He says, this world is not for I, nor tis not strange that even our loves should with our fortunes change. For tis a question left us yet to prove whether love lead fortune or else fortune love. For I means forever. So nothing in this world lasts forever nor tis not strange that even our loves should with our fortunes change. So it isn't strange that when we have changes in our lives, that would actually change our love too. And this is where the cynicism really kicks in, for tis a question left us yet to prove. It's a question that yet still is left to prove, to resolve or answer or test. And what's that question? Whether love lead fortune or else fortune love. So whether love brings good fortune or causes good fortune, or else it's fortune that causes love. And I suspect he agrees with the latter because he's about to give examples of it. He says, The great man down, you mark his favorite flies. The poor advanced makes friends of enemies. So the great man, the important or rich man, when he's down, when he's fallen, when he's at the bottom of fortune's wheel, you mark, you watch how his favorite flies. His biggest supporter runs away from him. And you have that cool double F sound, favorite flies. And by the same token, the poor advanced, the poor man who rises to the top of fortune's wheel, who gets fortune, makes friends of enemies. Suddenly his enemies all want to be his friends. This, by the way, is exactly what just happened to Claudius when he became king. And then the actor brings it home. He says, And hitherto doth love on fortune tend, for who not needs shall never lack a friend, and who in want a hollow friend doth try directly seasons him his enemy. Hitherto, in other words, up to this point, it's always been true, that love on fortune tend. Love actually depends on fortune. For who not needs, a person who doesn't need, need what? It could be a person who doesn't need money. It could be a person who doesn't need friends. That's exactly the person who never lacks a friend. So everybody's your friend when you don't need anything from them. And who in want, so a person in a time of poverty or some other need, a hollow friend doth try. Someone who tests their friend, in other words, by asking them for help. And what kind of friend? A hollow friend. So not a real friend, but one whose heart isn't really in it. So in a moment of need, when you test out their friendship, he directly seasons him. He immediately turns him into his enemy. So after that little lecture on life, it's like, where was I? But orderly to end where I begun, our wills and fates do so contrary run that our devices still are overthrown. So in an orderly fashion, in the right order, to end where I begun, I'm going to come back to the place I started, our wills and fates do so contrary run, our desires and what actually happens run in such opposite directions that our devices, that our plans, in other words, the things we devise, still are overthrown. They're always destroyed. Our thoughts are ours. Their ends, none of our own. So our thoughts, our early plans and decisions, our passionate decisions, those belong to us, but their ends, in other words, the final result that comes from them, they're none of our own. They're not in our control at all. They don't belong to us anymore. We can make all the plans we want, but it's not going to end up right. This sentence, by the way, is another one of those antitheses. So the thoughts may belong to us, but the ends don't. And this is where he actually relates it back to what she was talking about. So think thou wilt no second husband wed, but die thy thoughts when thy first lord is dead. So you can think you're not going to get married again. But when your first husband dies, your thoughts, your original intentions are going to die too. And the queen, of course, doesn't want to hear any of this. And she declares as much in very over-the-top ways. She says, Nor earth to me give food, nor heaven light. Sport and repose lock from me day and night. To desperation turn my trust and hope. An anchor's cheer in prison be my scope. Each opposite that blanks the face of joy meet what I would have well, and it destroy. Both here and hence pursue me lasting strife, if once a widow... Ever I be wife. And this is her curse on herself. She has like seven or eight curses within it. And we can spell them all out. So nor earth to give me food. Let neither earth give me food nor heaven give me light. So she won't get the things she needs from either earth or heaven. Sport and repose. In other words, fun and rest. Lock from me day and night. They should be kept from her all day long. To desperation turn my trust and hope. We have to untangle that a little bit. My trust and hope should turn into desperation. An anchor's cheer. An anchor is a hermit and cheer is food. In prison be my scope. The scope is like the total of what you would get in prison. So she should just get as much food in her prison as a hermit eats. And what else? Each opposite that blanks the face of joy. In other words, may every opposing force that turns a joyful face blank. In other words, pale. She wants that to meet what I would have well. Those enemies should encounter what she wants to have go well and it destroy and destroy it. Both here and hence, both in this place and away from this place. I've seen some people even take hence to refer to the afterlife. I don't know about that. But in all those places, may lasting strife pursue me. Strife meaning like torment or trouble. So wherever she goes, she should be chased by trouble. So when will those curses be in effect? If once a widow ever I be wife. So if I ever become a wife after having become a widow. And Hamlet can't resist rubbing it in. He says, she should break it now. The it in this case being her vow. It's like she's sworn all these things. If she breaks it now she's actually going to have to suffer all those things and again it's shocking how much of this play is actually directed at gertrude instead of claudius which is who we always heard it was for but the actors go on the king says tis deeply sworn like wow you really swore that and then he tells her sweet leave me here a while my spirits grow dull and fain i would beguile the tedious day with sleep so i guess he finally believes her and he asks for her to leave him here for a little bit my spirits grow dull in other words heavy sleepy and fain i would beguile fain means gladly or happily I would beguile, I would charm away the tedious day, the long, heavy day with sleep. And she finishes his line, but notice she picks up the word that he left off with. So he says, the tedious day with sleep, and she says, sleep rock thy brain, and never come mischance between us twain. So it is a beautiful image too, almost like the brain being a baby that you're rocking to sleep. And never come mischance. Mischance is like misfortune or terrible calamity. May one of those mischances never come between us twain, the two of us. And again, Hamlet turns right to his mother. He says, Madam, how like you this play? He's really poking her heart now. And all she can say is this incredibly famous line, The lady doth protest too much, methinks." Protest doesn't mean the same thing it means in our modern use of the word, like defend yourself. It means to like make loud declarations, like to swear. And methinks isn't just I think, it's something more like it seems to me. It's weird because it's not really a criticism of the ideas behind it. It's a real criticism of the playwriting. It's like, she's talking too much. But she might also be saying, like, no one would actually swear that much in life. And mostly you'll hear this as, methinks the lady doth protest too much. The order's all over the place. I never know why. But Hamlet comes right back at her. He says, oh, but she'll keep her word. Like, yeah, she's protesting a lot, but she's actually going to keep it. Or more to the point, she really should keep it. And then finally, Claudius pops up. We haven't heard much from him. All we've seen is his reaction over the course of the play, which I'm sure he's had to hide. And he starts to grill Hamlet a little. He says, "Have you heard the argument? Like if you know she'll keep her word, have you actually heard the plot summary of this play? Is there no offense in it?" Which is a really pointed question on his part. In other words, is there no like offensive subject matter in this play? You know, sex and violence and stuff. Now, he's already seen the dumb show. He knows what happens. He knows this is probably a criticism of him. But he plays that he's asking to kind of protect the ladies and the court in general. And speaking of protesting too much, here comes Hamlet. He says, "No, no. They do but jest. Poison in jest." No offense in the world. They're just pretending or they're just joking around. And he slips that word in there, poison in jest. They're just pretending to poison people. There's nothing offensive here at all. And Claudius tightens the screws a little bit. He says, what do you call the play? And Hamlet says, the mouse trap. Remember, this play's name is the murder of Gonzago, but he just renamed it because really this is how he's using it. He's using it as a trap. And Mary, how, he says. Mary again being short for by Mary. How's it called that? Tropically. You've probably heard the word trope. It means metaphorically or figuratively. It's not a literal mouse trap. It's not about an actual mouse. And you get that nice sound pun on trap and trope. So yeah, they're just pretending. This isn't a real thing. He says, yeah, they're just pretending. This doesn't relate to you. It shouldn't give offense to anyone. He says, this play is the image of a murder done in Vienna. Image like exact copy or representation. So yeah, this was actually a Viennese murder. Gonzago is the duke's name. His wife, Baptista. You shall see Anon. So he's just spelling out like, this isn't actually a criticism of you. Yeah, no, they have totally different names. You shall see Anon. You'll see soon what happens. And then he goes on and he really drives it home. He says, tis a knavish piece of work. But what of that? Knavish is like rascally. And there's that phrase piece of work again. But what of that? So what? Your majesty and we that have free souls, it touches us not. Free here means innocent, like free of guilt. So all of us, like yourself and me, that don't have guilty souls, it touches us not. It doesn't affect us in any way. Let the galled jade wince. Our withers are unrung. A jade is like an old, worn-out horse. And galled means that it's hurt by a sore. So it's another way of saying, let the guilty people feel bad because of this play. Our withers. Withers are a spot between a horse's shoulder that could be annoyed by wearing a saddle. And unrung means just like not irritated or not made sore so unlike those galled jades our withers are unrung we don't feel bad at all we're innocent aren't we your majesty and then finally finally another actor comes on stage and this is the actor for all intents and purposes representing Claudius and Hamlet's really excited because this is the moment he's been waiting for he says this is one Lucianus nephew to the king and Ophelia's pretty much done with him at this point she says you're as good as a chorus my lord remember choruses are those guys who get up and tell you what's about to happen before it happens it's like oh why do I even need to watch the play if you're just going to tell me what happens and he has snark that he can throw right back at her he says. I could interpret between you and your love if I could see the puppets dallying. And in a puppet show at this time, the people moving the puppets didn't actually do the voices. There was another person. You actually still see this in some Japanese theater. There's one person doing all the voices for the puppets. So that's what the interpreter is. So I could communicate between you and the person you love. I could be your go-between if I could see the puppets dallying. Dallying is like messing around. And there's even a little bit of a sexual connotation there. So he's hitting her hard again for sexuality, even though as far as we can tell, she's pretty innocent. And that really hurts her again. She says, you are keen, my lord. You are keen. Keen meaning really sharp or cutting in your language. It usually describes a blade, like a very sharp blade is described as keen. And Hamlet has another over-the-top sexual thing to say back to her. He says, it would cost you a groaning to talk. He says, it would cost you a groaning to take off my edge. And he's punning on two things she said. One is that keen can also mean like eager to have sex. And it has that sword usage again. So take off my edge literally means dull my blade. And in this case, sometimes a blade is not a blade, if you know what I mean. And the groaning is her having sex with him. And this is maybe the clearest sexual remark he said to her so far, even though it's sort of hidden in the series of puns. And all she can say is, still better and worse. Still here meaning always. And better isn't just good. It's like you're getting wittier and wittier, but also worse because your puns are getting more and more sexual and dirty. So it's like, I hope you're proud of yourself. You're incredibly witty, but you're still embarrassing to all of us. And of course, he has to have the last word. So he says, so you must take your husbands. And even in that time, they had that phrase for better and for worse in the marriage ceremony. So yeah, that's how you take, you marry your husbands by saying those words. Sometimes you'll see this with a different word instead of must take. You'll see mistake, like marry unwisely or marry insincerely. And notice he doesn't say husband. He says husbands, like your first and your second husband. So even while he's going at Ophelia, he's also still going at his mom. And finally, this poor actor's been standing on stage for like five minutes, waiting for them to finish. And they're probably finished now. So Hamlet turns to him and says, "'Begin, murderer!' Way to spoil the end of the play, by the way. And the murderer begins. And then Hamlet stops him again. He says, "'Pox, leave thy damnable faces and begin!' Pox, which is another way of saying, "'May the plague be on you. May the pox be on you. Like, the hell with this. Leave. Stop making thy damnable faces. Stop making these dumb faces and just start. Always an acting critic, this one. And finally, he says, "'Come, the croaking raven doth bellow for revenge!' And this is pretty melodramatic on his part. It's a little bit of a parody of revenge plays. The raven was always seen as the bird of death, usually because it hung around battlefields scavenging off the dead. So it bellows, it calls out for revenge. Which is a pretty funny thing to say, because this isn't actually a revenge moment. In some ways, Hamlet's almost mixing it up in his head. After all, this is meant to be a version of Claudius killing a version of Hamlet's father. And I think what he sees on stage is himself going to kill Claudius, right? Because this character, Lucianus, isn't the king's brother. He's the nephew to the king, which is what Hamlet is, by the way, to Claudius. In some ways, he's almost tipped his hand too much to Claudius here by talking about revenge instead of murder. And finally, this actor gets to act. He says, thoughts black, hands apt, drugs fit and time agreeing, confederate season, else no creature seeing, Thou mixture rank of midnight weeds collected with Hecate's band, thrice blasted, thrice infected. Thy natural magic and dire property on wholesome life usurp immediately. And this is very, very conscious melodramatic poetry. And what you have at the beginning is these four adjective-noun combinations. But in this case, they're noun-adjective combinations. The word order is switched. So thoughts black, black thoughts, by black because they're evil or murderous. Hands apt, apt meaning capable. Drugs fit, in other words, appropriate to the cause of poisoning. And time agreeing. In other words, this being the appropriate opportunity. And then we get sort of an echo of time agreeing. We get confederate season. Confederate like cooperating or kind of co-conspiring. And the season not being like spring, but like an opportune moment to act. And what else? Else no creature seeing. In other words, no other creature is watching me. So all these things are in place now. Thou mixture rank of midnight weeds collected. Rank meaning nasty or unpleasant. He's talking to the poison now, as though it's a person. Of midnight, weeds collected means made up of plants collected at midnight, which was supposed to be the time when all the bad vapors were out. And the mixture has been with Hecate's band, thrice blasted, thrice infected. Hecate is the goddess of witchcraft, and her ban is her curse. And thrice blasted, blasted means like withered, like a plant. So these weeds have been blasted by her and infected. Why thrice? Hecate was often depicted with sort of three faces or bodies. It's why when you see witches, they're often in combinations of three. Apparently, it's the magic number for witchcraft. So what is he asking from this mixture? Thy natural magic and dire property. Dire meaning dangerous or deadly. Unwholesome life, usurp immediately. And that's a very pointed word, usurp. It's what you do to a king when you kill him or throw him out of office. In this case, it just means to take unjustly from wholesome, from healthy life. But normally it refers to overthrowing a king, which he's doing in a double sense here. And this is the moment Hamlet's been waiting for. He pours the poison into the sleeping king's ears. And Hamlet just wants to make sure that everybody gets it. So he stands up and he says, He poisons him in the garden for his estate. The state being his possessions or his wealth or even just his high status his title but just so as not to offend he says his name's gonzago the story is extant and written in very choice italian extant means that it's based on a true story or even like current events ripped from the headlines as it were and written in very choice choice meaning excellent or well-chosen italian so they got the story for this play from an italian source and then just to twist the knife as much as possible he says you shall see anon how the murderer gets the love of gonzago's wife non-meaning soon. Like the next scene, as we know from the dumb show, is going to be him winning over the king's wife. And that finally does it. The king stands up. And how do we know that? Because Ophelia says, the king rises. It's a stage direction that somebody gets to say out loud. And this is exactly what Hamlet's been waiting for. He says, what, frighted with false fire? False fire is the shot of a gun that's been loaded with blanks or with no bullets at all. So it goes off, but there isn't actually a bullet in it. But it's an incredibly forceful line because you have those three F sounds, frighted with false fire. So he hasn't even tried to kill him. He's just poking at him. And as far as we can tell, he's just standing there saying nothing. Because I think he knows if he actually says anything, he gives away the game. And Gertrude is the first one to talk. She says, how fares, my lord? How are you doing? And Polonius sees that something isn't right and he shuts it down immediately. He says, give or the play. Give or I mean cut it off or abandon or stop it. And finally, put on the spot, Claudius just says, give me some light. Away. And then the scene falls into chaos. Everybody starts crying out for lights. 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 Which seems to indicate that this show is performed at least partly in the dark. And Claudius storms off. And with him, most of the court follows to see what's gone wrong. And the only people left on stage are Hamlet and Horatio. And this is exactly what they were waiting for. This is their confirmation. And Hamlet just starts making up poetry. He says, Why let the strucken deer go weep, the heart ungalled Play, for some must watch while some must sleep. Thus runs the world away. And this goes back a little bit to those images of the galled jade. The struck deer is like a wounded deer. And the myth about wounded deer was that they went off alone to die and sort of cried until they died so that the other deer in the herd wouldn't be attacked too. But then the heart ungalled, like galled jade, the heart is a male deer, and ungalled means not seriously hurt, or not hurt at all. So the wounded deer should go cry himself to death, but the deer that survived should just play. In this case, it seems like Claudius is the wounded deer, and Hamlet is the unwounded deer. For some must watch. Some people have to stay awake, while some must sleep. And remember, sleep is a little bit of a watchword for death in this play. So this line might be another way of saying, some people will live and some will die. Thus runs the world away. In other words, that's the way the world goes. He finally got the reaction he was looking for. And he celebrates. He says, Would not this, sir, and a forest of feathers, if the rest of my fortunes turn Turk with me, with two provincial roses on my raised shoes, get me a fellowship and a cry of players, sir? So would not this, wouldn't this play, along with a forest of feathers, feathers being part of a lead actor's costume, along with two provincial roses... Provincial being from Provence, this region of France, on my raised shoes, raised like having decorative slits in them, which was another part of an actor's costume. So this play, in the right costume, wouldn't it get me a fellowship, in other words, a membership in a cry of players? Players, of course, are actors. Cry is a plural noun for actors. What it literally means is a pack, like a group of hunting dogs. And why would he need to become an actor if the rest of my fortunes turned Turk with me? Turn Turk means converting to Islam, but it's another way to say desert me or leave me since you're renouncing your Christian religion. So basically, if my fortunes desert me, if I'm not prince anymore, I can just go become an actor since I did this amazing play. So he says to Horatio, wouldn't it get me a fellowship in this company of actors? And Horatio says, half a share. So if you were a full member in a company, you got a share of the profits. Shakespeare was what they called a sharer in the Lord Chamberlain's men and then in the King's men, his company. So Horatio was like, yeah, you know, maybe you'd get half a share. And Hamlet doesn't want to hear that. He says a whole one. Eye. Like, no, I get a full share. I am that good. And then he goes right back into his poetry. He says, "For thou dost know, O Damon, dear, this realm dismantled was of Jove himself, and now reigns here a very, very Pejoc." In Greek mythology, Damon is an incredibly loyal friend to this character named Pythias. So he's talking about Horatio as this very loyal friend of his. Dismantled doesn't mean our modern sense of taken apart. It means unruled or divested. It's like the mantle of rule, like the cloak of the king was taken away of Jove himself, from Zeus himself, from the king of the gods, which again stands in here for King Hamlet. So he's talking again about the murder of his father. He's saying, you know, Horatio, the real king was overthrown and now reigns here a very, very peacock. A peacock is another name for a peacock, which is what he's calling Claudius because of all that seeming and showing off like a peacock. So the guy who reigns here now is a peacock. Really, what he should have said was something that rhymes with was. The proper term is probably ass. And Horatio jumps right on him and says, you might have rhymed, which is a sneaky little joke, which I always enjoyed. But Hamlet doesn't even notice. He's in full celebration mode. He says, oh, good, Horatio, I'll take the ghost's word for a thousand pound. Remember at the beginning of the scene, he was saying, well, we don't know if the ghost is right or not. Now he says, I'll bet a thousand pounds that the ghost was telling us the truth, which is a huge amount of money. And he says to him, did perceive? Like, did you notice? And Horatio says, very well, my lord. Yeah, I also noticed when he got up right in the poisoning. And Hamlet's still spinning. He says, upon the talk of the poisoning. He got right up when we were talking about the poisoning. Horatio says, I did very well note him. Yeah, I was watching him. I observed him really well. I noticed he did that. And Hamlet is still zooming along. He says, aha! And he wants to celebrate some more. He says, come, some music. Come, the recorders. So he's calling for someone to bring him music to celebrate. And specifically for those recorders he was talking about before. And then he goes back into bad poetry. Some Hamlets will sing these parts. He says, for if the king like not the comedy, why then belike, he likes it not, Pardee. If the king doesn't like the comedy, this play, why then belike, belike meaning probably or maybe, he likes it not, Per Pardee per is from the French word pardieu by God, but it's just a twisty little phrase about how the king is thrown by this play. And then he calls out again, he says, come some music. And finally, we get our first information about what's going on off stage with the king rosencrantz and Guildenstern come back and now Guildenstern's the one in charge maybe rosencrantz is out of favor or something he says good my lord vouchsafe me a word with you vouchsafe means permit or grant me again it's a very formal word but that's who he is he talks that way like please allow me to have a word with you and it's like a word no no sir a whole history history being like a whole story not just one word all the words you can have any words you want and Guildenstern starts in he says the king sir and hamlet immediately interrupts him he says i sir what of him yeah what about him and Guildenstern is starting to lose a little, but he says, is in his retirement, marvelous distempered. Retirement doesn't mean like he's going to move to Florida. It means his withdrawal back to his own quarters. He's marvelous distempered. We've heard this word before. It's literally that idea of your humors being out of the proper balance, but it means disturbed or disordered. It's the way they were talking about Hamlet's madness before. Marvelous distempered, incredibly out of sorts. And Hamlet cuts him off again. He says, with drink, sir. And this is his continuing criticism of the king as being a drunk and encouraging all the worst things in Denmark. He's like, oh, is he feeling out of sorts because he's drunk too much? turns like, no, my lord, rather with choler. Choler is one of those four humoral substances. In this case, it means anger. It's literally bile is the substance. And Hamlet says, your wisdom should show itself more richer to signify this to the doctor. For me to put him to his purgation would perhaps plunge him into far more choler. Your wisdom should show itself more richer. In other words, it'd probably be much smarter of you to signify this, to communicate this to the doctor, right? Because they thought that this was all about imbalance of fluid. So it was really a doctor's job, not Hamlet's job. For me to put him to his purgation, purgation is purifying or cleansing either of the body or of the soul. And most medicine of this time, as you may know, was about purging fluids to balance off the humors. This is why they bled people, because they were trying to balance it out. Purgation has that sense of confess. So if I was the one who was taking his confession, but also there's that idea that if Hamlet was the one to purge him, he would purge him of his blood, which is to say kill him. So either way, he's going to be much more angry. And again, Guildenstern isn't quite fast enough to keep up with him. He says, good my lord, put your discourse into some frame and start not so wildly from my affair. So my good lord, put your discourse, put your talk, your words into some frame, like a structure, some like order, coherence, and start not so wildly. Start is like jumper, turn away from my affair, from the business I'm talking about. He thinks he's just changed the subject on him. And Hamlet plays very chastened. He says, I am tame, sir. Pronounce Which is a very fancy, courtier kind of way to say, you know, say what you want. I'll be good. And it turns out it isn't the king who wants to see him now. Guildenstern says, the queen, your mother, in most great affliction of spirit, hath sent me to you. Affliction of spirit, like suffering or anger. And I think actually you don't even need to put a period at the end of this line because I think Hamlet interrupts him. He says, you're welcome. So it's like, she sent me to you. But Hamlet cuts him off. Oh, she sent you to me? Well, welcome. And that really gets on Gildenstern's last nerve. He says, Nay, good my lord, this courtesy is not of the right breed. No, this pleasant behavior, this saying 'you're welcome stuff, it's not appropriate to this situation. It's not the right kind of courtesy. If it shall please you to make me a wholesome answer, I will do your mother's commandment. If not, your pardon and my return shall be the end of my business. So if you don't mind making me a wholesome answer, wholesome can mean like a reasonable answer. But wholesome can also mean healthy, which is what Hamlet's going to pun off of in a second. So if you can just make me a reasonable answer, then I will finish what your mother actually asked me to do, her commandment. And if not, all I want, the end of my business, is your pardon, in other words, your permission to return, and then I'll go back. And that's the end of what I'll do here. Like, I can't put up with this anymore. And Hamlet just says, sir, I cannot. And that throws Guildenstern again. He says, what, my lord? And then he takes that sense of sane from wholesome and says, make you a wholesome answer. My wit's diseased. He's Like, I I can't make you a wholesome answer because I'm crazy. But sir, such answer as I can make, you shall command. Or rather, as you say, my mother. Remember Guildenstern just called her order a commandment? So he's playing on that. So whatever answer I can make, you'll have at your disposal, basically. Oh, not you, right? It's her commandment. So actually, my mother shall have it. But anyway, therefore, no more, but to the matter. My mother, you say. So enough of the silliness, let's get down to business. And clearly Guildenstern doesn't want any more part of Hamlet at this point. He just sort of stomps off, frustrated. And Rosencrantz has to take over, which is good for Rosencrantz, too, because he gets to be the one to deliver the message. He says, then thus, she says, your behavior hath struck her into amazement and admiration. And then I think Hammond interrupts him again. Um, before we go on, amazement isn't like the face that people get in movies when they look up at spaceships. It's more like confusion or paralysis, like being stuck in a maze. And admiration isn't like I admire you. It's more like shock or astonishment or wonder. So Hamlet's behavior has done that to him. But of course, Hamlet interrupts him right in the middle of that. He says, oh, wonderful son that can so astonish a mother. It's like, I must be a really great son if I can amaze my mother that much. But now he sees Rosencrantz getting upset and he says, but is there no sequel at the heels of this mother's admiration? A sequel like a person that follows right behind at the heels of, almost like you're stepping on the heels of someone in front of you. So I have her admiration. What comes after that? And he says, impart, which is another sort of fancy courtier sort of way to say, tell me. And finally, they get to say what they wanted to say. Rosencrantz says, She desires to speak with you in her closet ere you go to bed. And closet, as you remember from Ophelia, isn't where you keep your shoes. It's like a special private chamber. Not necessarily a bedroom, but sort of smallish. So she wants to speak with you in her closet ere before you go to bed. And he responds in this very over the top courtierly way. He says, We shall obey were she ten times our mother. And notice he's using that royal we, not I. But he says, I'll do it even if she were 10 times our mother. That seems a little backwards, no? Like, even if she were 10 times our mother, we'd still do it. Almost as though the fact that she's his mother is a bad thing. And finally, he concludes, have you any further trade with us? Trade like business with us. Again, that us is very distancing. It's like, I'm the king and you're nobody. And who knows, he might be the king pretty soon. And Rosencrantz decides to give it one last shot. He says, my lord, you once did love me something actually very earnest about this moment. And Hamlet responds, and do still by these pickers and stealers. In other words, I swear by these hands. By the way, pickers and stealers are how the Book of Common Prayer, which was sort of the official prayer book of the time, referred to hands. But there's something kind of negative and insidious about them. I'm swearing by these pickers and stealers. And finally, he just asks him outright one last time because this is what he came here to do. Good my Lord, what is your cause of distemper? Remember distemper being illness or strange behavior or madness. He just asks him, What's the cause of this? You do surely bar the door upon your own liberty if you deny your grief to your friend. Bar the door is that image of locking a door. but In this case, it means like restrict or prevent your own liberty. It can be your freedom in general. In this case, it's probably more like your freedom from problems, from disease, from madness. So you're making things even worse for yourself if you deny your griefs. Griefs in this case isn't sadness. It's your grievances. What's bothering you? If you deny that to your friend... And Rosencrantz is pulling the friend card, which Hamlet really isn't having much of anymore because he knows that they sold him out. So when Rosencrantz asks, he just tells him, he says, sir, as though he's about to tell him a secret. He says, sir, I lack advancement. And advancement is literally room for promotion, almost like at a job where you've reached the top that you can be promoted to. And Rosencrantz doesn't know what to make of that. He says, that's the secret. How can that be when you have the voice of the king himself for your succession in Denmark? The voice is like the promise of the king for your succession in Denmark. That you'll succeed to the throne after he dies so the king already promised you're his successor how is it possible you lack advancement and hamlet says aye sir but while the grass grows the proverb is something musty while the grass grows is the first half of a saying while the grass grows the horse starves there's a thing you'd say if somebody told you to wait while the grass grows the horse starves like i can't wait forever i'll die in the meantime for waiting But apparently it was such a well-known proverb, he didn't even have to finish it. I mean, it's like, when in Rome? We never say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, which is the full phrase. As soon as someone says, when in Rome, you know exactly what they're talking about. It's the same thing with this. And instead of ending it, he says, the proverb is something musty. Something meaning somewhat. And musty meaning like moldy, literally. But in this case, like overused or unoriginal. So just when Rosencrantz thought that he was going to get an honest answer about what was wrong with Hamlet, Hamlet came out with this thing that doesn't make any sense to him. And as soon as that happens, remember how Hamlet was calling for music for the recorders? An actor brings that in and he's excited to see it. And he says, oh, the recorders, let me see one. And then Hamlet goes over and grabs Guildenstern. He says, to withdraw with you. Withdraw meaning literally, well, let's go over here. But in this case, it's like speak privately with you. And now he's going to really go at him. He says, why do you go about to recover the wind of me as if you would drive me into a toil? This is a pretty elaborate hunting image, which people would have known at the time. Recover the wind is a tactic where you deliberately let the wind carry your scent to the prey. So usually you want to make sure that the wind is blowing in your face so that the thing you're hunting doesn't smell you. But in this case, you want the thing you're hunting to smell you so it'll run away. And when it runs away, it runs right into the trap you set. That's what a toil is. A toil's a trap. So he's asking Guildenstern, why are you trying to trap me? Which may be what he thinks his mother's summons is. And Gildenstern says, that's not what I'm doing at all. Oh, my Lord, if my duty be too bold, my love is too unmannerly. So if the fact that I'm carrying out my duty to your mother is too strong, it's just because my love for you makes me forget my manners. That's the only reason I'm doing this. I'm not trying to screw you over here. And Hamlet says, I do not well understand that. Like, it's because of your love for me? Okay. And then he goes somewhere very confusing. He says, will you play upon this pipe? Gives him a recorder. He says, just play this. And Gildenstern defends himself. He says, my Lord, I cannot. Hamlet says, I pray you. I am asking you. Just do it and gildenstern replies believe me i cannot like i don't know how to do it and hamlet asks again i do beseech you i'm begging you just play this recorder gildenstern starts to lose it again i know no touch of it my lord like i have no idea how to play it hamlet responds it is as easy as lying oh he really burned him there since you're so good at lying it's as easy as that and then he starts to try to teach him he says govern these ventages with your fingers and thumbs give it breath with your mouth and it will discourse most eloquent music so govern control by covering and uncovering these ventages. Ventages are like vents, holes, with your fingers and thumbs. Give it a breath with your mouth. In other words, blow into it. And it will discourse. It will speak out or utter most eloquent music. Eloquent, again, is a word usually used for language, not for music, like well-spoken. So he says it's that easy. You just move your hands over these holes and blow into it, and it'll put out perfect music. He says again, look you, these are the stops. Stop is another word for holes. And Guildenstern finally just snaps. He says, but these cannot I command to any utterance of harmony. I have not the skill. I can't command them to. I can't make these holes produce any utterance, any sound or expression of harmony. Like I can make sounds, but they're not going to be harmonious. They'll just be noises. I have not the skill. Like I don't have the knowledge to play this. And that's when Hamlet turns it right on him. He says, why look you now how unworthy a thing you make of me. Unworthy here is like gullible or stupid. So he's like, if it's not that easy, then you must think I'm really stupid. You would play upon me. You would seem to know my stops. You would pluck out the heart of my mystery. You would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass. And there is much music, excellent voice in this little organ, yet cannot you make it speak? So you don't think it's easy to play a recorder, but you think it's easy to play me? You would seem to know my stops. You think you know all the buttons to push with me. You would pluck out the heart of my mystery. His mystery in this case is why he's acting crazy. And pluck out the heart is like someone dissecting an animal or like this thing they used to do where they would open up a dead animal and examine the entrails of that animal to predict the future. But again, you act like it's so easy to figure out my mystery. You would sound me. Sound can mean play music, but it can also mean probe. From my lowest note to the top of my compass. And compass can mean your musical range, but it can also mean like your personal limits. So you think you can really take me to the end of my abilities. And there is much music, excellent voice in this little organ. Organ meaning instrument, but in this case it's himself. It's like, I really do have a lot of excellent music inside of me. I have many words to say, but you can't make me speak. You can't get me to tell you what my secret is. And you think it's so easy. He finally just lays all his cards on the table and says, Splud, do you think I am easier to be played on than a pipe? Splud is another one of these swear words, short for I swear by God's blood. Do you think it's easier to play me than you play a recorder? Call me what instrument you will. Though you can fret me, you cannot play upon me. If you've ever played a string instrument, like a guitar, it has what's called frets, which are those bars up the neck that lets you control the pitch. So the verb fretting means either to manipulate the frets, or it can also mean anger, like someone fretting. So you can make me angry, but you can't play me. I mean, he absolutely ruins them in this scene. And it's worth mentioning here, after having seen what Hamlet did over the last 20 minutes or so of this play, that Hamlet can be a real dick sometimes. I think when you hear about Hamlet, Most people talk about like the noble prince and how great he is. But Hamlet has a really cruel side. He has a really small side. And when he senses betrayal, he turns on people hard. I would really like to see a Hamlet who's a little less likable, and who doesn't know he's noble, but is just trying really hard and sometimes is kind of bad. And it's not like these people don't deserve it. But boy, does he use his superior mind to break people down. And we're about to see some of the collateral damage from that. So after he's reduced them to puddles, Polonius comes in, probably asking for the same thing. And Hamlet wheels on him and says, God bless you, sir. And Polonius says, my lord, the queen would speak with you and presently. So your mother wants to speak with you and presently at once, immediately. But he's not going to make it that easy. He says, do you see yonder cloud that's almost in shape of a camel? It's an amazing non sequitur. See that cloud over there that looks like a camel? And Polonius says, by the mass, and tis like a camel indeed. By the Mass being short for I swear by the Mass, the Holy Mass. And watch what Hamlet's doing here. He's using the fact that he knows that these courtiers have to keep pleasing him, and he just twists and twists because they will literally say anything. Because Polonius immediately agrees it looks like a camel, and then Hamlet changes his mind. He says, Me thinks it is like a weasel. Like it seems to me that it actually looks like a weasel. Polonius says, It is backed like a weasel. In other words, it has a back like a weasel. And then Hamlet sees how far he can go with it. He says, Or like a whale. And Polonius says, Very like a whale. And I think Polonius knows exactly what he's doing to him, but he's just trying to get him to see his mom. So after he's done humiliating Polonius, he says, then will I come to my mother by and by, by and by meaning shortly or very soon. And then he has a little bitter aside to the audience. They fool me to the top of my bent. Fool me meaning either they're trying to trick me or they're trying to make a fool out of me to the top of my bent. In archery, the bent is as far back as you can pull the bow before it snaps. And that's how far he's gotten. He's really in a bad state right now. He feels like everyone is against him. And he says again to Polonius, I will come by and by. I'm coming soon. And Polonius says, I will say so. And he goes off to tell Gertrude that he's on his way. And Hamlet has one more aside. He says, by and by is easily said. It's like, are you going to say so? Well, that's easy to say. And by and by can also have the meaning of eventually. So it's a very flexible term. He could be there in two minutes. He could be there in 45 minutes. And finally, he says to everybody on stage, leave me friends. And this includes Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So it's particularly withering of him to call them friends. And Hamlet's worked himself up into a real lather. But you'll notice he's back alone on stage, and he has kind of a mini soliloquy here. He says, "'Tis now the very witching time of night when churchyards yawn and hell itself breathes out contagion to this world." It's now the witching time of night. Witching time is essentially the most opportune time to cast a spell. It usually means midnight. It may not actually be midnight, but it is late. When churchyards yawn. We had a similar image when he was talking to the ghost about graves opening their mouths and casting out the dead, churchyards being where the cemeteries were. So they yawn, they open their mouths wide, and the dead come out. Remember, this is when his father's ghost showed up at midnight. And when hell itself breathes out contagion to this world. Contagion being like an infectious or an unhealthy influence into the world. So this is the time of night when all the bad stuff is walking around. And this is exactly the moment when Hamlet feels the most worked up. Because he knows that now he knows his course. He goes on, now could I drink hot blood and do such bitter business as the day would quake to look on. It's an incredible image, especially for this guy who started the scene praising people who aren't too passionate. Now he could drink hot blood. He could kill someone and drink their blood and do such bitter business. I love that double B sound. It really punches forward. Bitter meaning sort of evil or unsavory business as the day would quake to look on. Like This is something you can get away with at night, but if the day actually had to see this, it would quake. It would shiver. But that quake is an incredible sounding word. Soft. Now to my mother. Soft can have a lot of meanings. It's sort of a particle word. But here I think it means like hush or quiet or wait. Now to my mother. Time to go see my mother. Again, really interesting that he started off with this plan to catch his uncle. And now the first person he goes to is his mother. But he needs to prepare himself. He says, O heart, lose not thy nature. Nature being his natural feeling. The natural feeling of a son towards a mother. Let not ever the soul of Nero enter this firm bosom. Nero was a famous Roman emperor. And he killed his mother named Agrippina firm here means resolute and bosom is just another way of saying heart. So my heart is resolute and I don't ever want to be someone who would kill his mother because right now he's in a headspace where he could do it. He says, let me be cruel, not unnatural. So I need to be cruel to her. I need to tell her the things that I want to tell her, but not unnatural, like inhuman, unlike a son's conduct to their mother. Right after he said, heart lose not thy nature in those previous lines. He says, I will speak daggers to her, but use none. He says, I'll stab her with my words, but I won't stab her with an actual dagger. And Hamlet really seems worried that he might kill his mother. But remember, this was part of his promise to his ghost father, was that he would leave her to heaven. That doesn't mean he can't yell at her, though. This is also the start of some somewhat unfortunate criticism and even more so performance, which is the whole Oedipal Hamlet Gertrude thing. This was something that Freud noticed when he was coming up with the idea of the Oedipus complex. And so it's rare now that you see a production of Hamlet where Hamlet doesn't have some slightly weird sexual stuff with his mom. A, that's not really what the Oedipus Complex is in psychology. But B, no, he doesn't. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is killing her. I will defend that to my dying day. Sometimes a dagger is just a dagger. So if you're playing Hamlet and have the urge to hump your Gertrude, please show some restraint. Anyway, he goes on. So he says, my tongue and soul in this be hypocrites. Tongue and soul is another way of saying what I say and how I feel. And hypocrite actually comes from the word for stage actor. It's someone who feels one thing inside and expresses something else on the outside. So what makes his tongue and soul hypocrites? Well, either his soul really wants to kill her and his tongue is just going to yell at her, or he's going to speak as though he wants to kill her and in his soul he's really not going to want to or he needs to not want to. So that's why they're hypocrites because they don't match up. And he elaborates on that same thought. He says, How in my some ever she be shent, to give them seals never my soul consent. So howsoever she be shent, however much I scold her, which is what shent means, with my words, my soul must never consent to give them seals. And give them seals means act on them. That comes from the fact that when you write out a kingly decree, it's not valid until you put your seal on it. So you can put whatever words you want on a page, but until you seal them, they're not official. So in other words, I can say the worst things to her in the world, but I must never let my emotions get the better of me so that I actually kill her. And notice also, this is the end of this long scene. It's a rhyming couplet. So this is a really highly charged scene and it ends incredibly charged because we know he's going to go off and there's a chance he could do something really stupid here. So that's the end of part five. Be sure to come back for part six when Hamlet will actually carry out his revenge. I know it seems early in the play, but all those of you who've been calling for him to stop delaying and just do it, he's about to do it. Exciting, right? Come on back. In the meantime, I'd really appreciate if you could help to make this podcast possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks towards producing it. I really appreciate it. Bye.